prophecy and prescience? How can they be put to the test in the face of the unanswered questions? Consider, how much is actual prediction of the waveform, as Moadib referred to his vision image, and how much is the prophet shaping the future to fit the prophecy? What of the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy? Does the prophet see the future, or does he see a line of weakness, a fault or cleavage that he may shatter with words or decisions as a diamond cutter shatters his gem with the blow of a knife? Private Reflections of Moadib by the Princess Irulan. To Spice World, an inebriated exploration of Frank Herbert's Dune. My name is Derek. And my name is Mike. With each chapter, we open a new bottle of wine and have a bit of a buzzed book club, Derek. Ooh, we do. And we're back for chapter 31 this week, Mike. Is it 31 already? Uh, it is. It is. Oh, man. We're cruising right along. And uh, we haven't had a wine that lines up with a chapter in quite a long time, but I found one. I found a good one. Oh, what do we got? We have Kung Fu Girl. It is a uh, Riesling <laughs> at a Washington State. Uh, and Mike, on the back, I don't got any flavor notes, but I got this. Ooh. Land to hand, vineyard to bottle. <laughs> Land to <laughs> hand, vineyard to bottle. I love it. <laughs> Pretty good. So we hadn't had a Riesling yet. And uh, I don't know if you, you want to go ahead and take a little taste of this. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, ooh. Quite a kick to it. Oh, it does. There's a lot of flavor. Yeah. Back to the front of that. Yeah. yeah. Kung Fu kick to the face. Yeah, it's, it's a little much for me, if I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be going back for too much of the more of this. Yeah, it's definitely got a sweeter tone to it as well. Yeah, it's very sweet. A lot of sour notes, but uh, it's good. It's strong. It's definitely strong. I like watching I, you drink it. I, I think I, it's hilarious. I, I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but into our chapter. Oh, we have uh whoa whoa oh I'm sorry we got we got some we got some new things coming up here no you you can understand why I wanted to skip past this part <laughs> <laughs> oh, no we got some new spice worlders we, at our little sketch we do have new spice worlders new some, patrons uh, new Patreon members that is a fantastic how many do we have we have three new ones oh my lord isn't that exciting that's going fast we're gonna need a bigger sketch. <laughs> gonna have to start re-renovating already. Okay, who? What do we got? Well, what are, what are their uh, what levels we coming in at? Oh, we got so first coming in at our half a juice level, we've got Andrew Hop. Andrew Hop. Oh, that's perfect. Um, he's actually the one that messaged me about. Uh, I don't know if we talked about him here, but he messaged me about uh, liquid helium. Oh no, I don't think we did talk. About <laughs> <that>. <laughs> well, we got into a conversation about it, and that's like, with uh, the, oh yeah, with that planet that yeah, was like yeah. all yeah, all helium. Yeah, and uh, he worked. The, he, uh, Works with MRI machines, and they actually use liquid helium in that. Okay, I, I do kind of remember this. Yeah, this yeah, was, yeah. That's way back. It's pretty cool. That's really neat. Um, coming in at our spice wine enthusiasts, we have Nada Idris. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. And uh, this one I thought you would especially love. I we, know. <laughs> we got Desert Power <laughs> coming Desert in. Desert Power. I hate it so much, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Derek, you are now officially... Supported by Desert Power. <laughs> you, you know what this feels like? Because uh, in, in this chapter, we're going to see like 
the leader is the naive is still guy, right? He's in control. Yeah. But man, he's being constantly undermined <laughs> by one member of the Siet. And I feel like that's your desert power is for me already. <laughs> Just undermining my authority within the Spice Worlders. Well, clever name, Desert Power. Thank you, and welcome everyone to our little oh sketch. Um, uh, this bottle of Riesling's up to you guys. Yeah. Oh, man, it's a kicker. <laughs> it's like, my God, uh, you did not just do that. It is also, I mean, it's really for the uh, daughter of kinds. Daughter of kinds. Yeah. Oh, my God. I since, you threw me for a loop. Since we're it never going to get son of kinds. <laughs> no son of kinds. Super good. Derek, let's talk about... This little quote, Mike. Yeah. yeah before the chapter, for sure. Because this, this is a good one. And I like that it's from... Uh, private reflections on Moadib. So this is Irulan just having a kind of her own little self thought. Sort of like writing. Yeah. yeah. What well, she felt about all this? Uh, what what stood out to you the most? What do you want to hit up first? Uh, just a lot of words that referred to sound. What I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. How actual prediction is more of a waveform, and uh, talking about uh, harmonics inherent in actual acts of prophecy. I just yeah. thought that was kind of cool. Is that that's really neat. It's very, like, uh, hitting on for me, like, brings up, like, string theory. Mm-hmm. Of just, like, the base level of all this is this little vibration. Well, also, uh, in quantum mechanics, it's really based off predictions. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where something is until you actually look at it. So all you can really do is uh, base things in terms of probability. Right. And then isn't that also where, like, it comes from this whole idea of, like, the observer affecting the experiment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no way you can ever really separate the two. I mean, I think that's definitely true for uh, for Paul, in a way. I mean, like, he has full control over what he does or doesn't do. Yeah, it lines up pretty pretty well with what he's described to us so far. Mm-hmm. Especially with him just describing how lost he's been in these past situations. Mm-hmm. And sort of searching for that. And he knows every word sort of makes it all shift and change. And ultimately, he keeps finding himself somewhere he never saw. It's mm-hmm. pretty neat. And probably pretty revelatory for him. I think there is maybe a little bit of both, though, because I think he keeps finding himself going on paths that he didn't like mean to go on to necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like I, I, I lost myself in this metaphysical. You didn't know, but I like it. Yeah, it, but it's all all paths he can't see while he's grasping at ones that he can't see. Right. Because right. he is trying to get somewhere that mm-hmm. he has an idea of like safety and a little complacency in it. Uh, so it's always an interesting battle going on with him. I feel like this is something that. Uh, do you think this is something he's uh, talked about before with people? Like uh, Princess Irulan here? I mean, what do you mean before? Or, um, has I guess, has just talked about yeah, after the span of this book. Not not up till now. We're going to have, like, Jessica kind of confirm in the next couple of chapters of just, like, Paul still hasn't ever mentioned his future visions to her. No, 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 no. I meant, oh. like, when Princess Irulan writes this book, do you think that Muad'Dib has spoken with her about this kind of thing before? Oh, yeah. Ex- okay, ex- that's my point. Extensively. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, she has unfettered access. I think I think she's got a glass of wine while reading this and just, like, or writing this. It's just like, hmm, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Especially the private reflections. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's when Irulan really gets to sit down with a glass. Yeah. Like, I don't get to give this to an editor. I can write whatever <laughs> I like. Uh uh-huh. Well, you got anything else you want no. to throw into that? No, I think that was good. There? Um, I, I also, think we've really beaten this uh, dead horse. Yeah, but I, I would like to highlight just that this is uh, bringing up uh, the blows of a knife. It kind of ends with a little kind of imagery of violence there. Mm. I think it's a little foreshadowing. Oh, Sort of like, what's to come here? Because remember, we're, we're in a very dangerous predicament. And no chapter has been uh, let us really catch our breath yet. 
if the desert's not trying to kill us, some animal is trying to kill us. If some animal isn't, we're like meeting strangers. Are they trying to kill us? Do you think it's more in terms of violence or more in terms of finality? Especially when you think about like, uh, the was it the way of the knife? Yeah, yeah, the way of the knife, cutting it and saying it ends here yeah. because I say it In the it sense was. that like, as soon as he, like when he decides to say a certain thing, that is final and like that is just the future that is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you can go with a little bit either way. I like, I like bringing that one back up. That was one of like the best quotes that we've mm-hmm. stumbled upon so far uh, through this book. But we begin this chapter, Mike. We're back in the uh, in the basement of Paul and Jessica. We've had a man just call down for their water, which mm-hmm. you uh, very graciously gave of like maybe he's just being nice and trying to get them <laughs> some water. You know, he's a really helpful Fremen. Glass half full in the desert. <laughs> yep. So that's not the case. This guy <laughs> definitely wants to kill both of them and kind of move along his way. Fortunately, he's not in charge at all. <laughs> now, uh, Paul, he's putting down his fear at this point, and he looks over and he just sees how battle-ready Jessica is. Because mm-hmm. now we last saw her. She was pushing back all that fatigue and just got all of her adrenaline flowing. And was, right. she's ready to do, like rock everyone there. And our main voice, which we're going to learn, is uh, Stilgar kind of steps forward. And he's just saying, like, it'd be regrettable if we had to destroy you guys out of hand. Now, that one is a little bit more of a threat than his last statement. <laughs> just like calm, trying to calm the situation like, down. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, trying to get control of it. And uh, Jessica, for the moment, knows there are at least two people here, uh, which is crazy considering by the end of it, we're going to figure out there are 42 people, or four in total, including yeah. Paul and Jessica, but there are 40. She only can count the two that have spoken. Everyone else is concealed in the darkness still. Then uh, we hear one of them kind of call down in a, a great a great kind of language, some Chikopsa. Yeah, it's coming back. Yeah, do you know what this meant, Mike? I had to go open up an old book. No. I had to dip into some gypsy sorcery and fortune telling. Oh, from, from who wrote that book? Um, That was uh, Charles Godfrey Leland. Right. 1891. <laughs> so our first one had to do with the goat and like rubbing the dried pieces on it, right. spitting in its face. Right. We're a little, we're a little more easy going this time around. Okay, what do we got? All right, so this first one is um like... Signoro Horobsa Sacres e Manage, and it goes on. And this one, it turns out, is um, this kind of like poem that goes into the belief that, like, there's a power from the dead, uh, especially from their graves. And in this little song, this guy, he wants to, he's lost his loved one, so he wants to die as well. So he, like, plucks a rose from her grave so that it will, like, cause his death and he'll be able to join her. Wait, what? Yeah. So, like, I'll give you the translation. It goes, uh, On her little tomb there grows, by itself a lovely rose. All alone the rose I break, and I do it for her sake. I sat by her, I held her so dear. Now her grave and mine are near. I break the rose because I know that to her I soon must go. Grief cannot my spirit, stir, grief cannot my spirit stir, since I know I go to her. Whoa. That's our little gypsy tale. And so what does this this particular sentence mean then? Just like one That that is he just pulls the lines from the poem. Oh like that's just the untranslated stanza of that poem. Oh. So that's all it directly goes to. 
Oh, damn. Uh, obviously, we're not taking that meaning whatsoever. Right, right, right. But it's like, like that is the source that, for That's it. the source of that. Is, and it, that it has that kind of death overtone is what exactly what we want to be fitting into this whole okay. uh, setting anyway, right, with how Jameis is speaking. Because that's Jameis who yells that down. Right. Because it says it was the man to the right calling, calling out across the basin. Do you think Frank had any idea what he was writing down here? No, yeah, totally. He definitely, he read that book. Yeah. There's no way. Uh, Because that's the only place I could find that text (laughs) ever, like word for word. And he takes, uh, with the exception of one later on, he does change it around a little bit. But otherwise, like, he's ripping this verbatim from it, uh, which I love. And then uh, he'll drop in some Arabic and stuff to kind of punctuate it. Mm -hmm. and Maybe, maybe, like, punch it up a little bit. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Jessica... Catches on what this word means. Like, identifies it as Chikopsa. To Paul, it's all gibberish. Mm-hmm. She realized it's that hunting language. And the man above them was saying that perhaps these are the people that uh, that were the strangers they thought. thought. So that's what it's supposed to be translating to. Because they are seeking people. Yep. They were given a message. We're going to learn from kinds ultimately. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's trying to say there. Uh, with this, the main speaker, who's going to be Stoker, kind of steps into the moonlight. And I love the description. Like, he's still got the hood over him and the moon casting down, so you can't see his eyes. You mm-hmm. just see the nose and the beard. So, like, they don't quite identify him just yet, since Paul's technically already met him. Right. And if he ever got a view, he would be able to kind of unbreak <laughs> that puzzle there. Uh, and with this, there's, like, a scrambling sound on, like, both sides and above. And that's when Paul realizes, like, oh, my God. There's an entire troop here. <laughs> There's a whole line of Fremen are about them. So Jessica must catch on to that too quite a bit. And, uh, you know, Stokar steps forward and he offers a great line for an introduction of what have we here, gin or human? Ah, and That's perfect since we've already gone over this a little bit, yeah. Mike. We know the difference between a gin or a human and how important it is to answer correctly here. <laughs> you want to say human. And uh, Jessica hears, like, the true banter in her voice. So that must have been, like, a wave of relief over her. That this guy is sort of playing the formalities, but there's, like, a knowingness to what he's saying. And he follows it up, Stilgar does, with, like, human, I warrant. I'm like, great, great. And Jessica, she looks (laughs) him over. She can sense that there's a knife in his robe, you know, and... At that moment, there's that tinge of regret in her for not having shields. And she she allows herself, she permits herself a tinge of regret. Which you think you would have that beaten out of you? Just ran from Shihalu. <laughs> like the, the shield is the last thing you want. Right? <laughs> what would you have done with a shield? <laughs> um, he uh, being Stilgar, he asks her to speak, and at this point, I love that she plays this up, and it says she does so with all the royal arrogance she could muster. Mm-hmm. I'm like, good, go for it, Jessica. And she just tells him, like, who comes on us like criminals out of the night? Which is ironic being they are literally the only two criminals in the night on this whole <laughs> planet right now. <laughs> Um, fugitives i wouldn't say criminals <laughs> i think fugitive is indicative of a crime <laughs> right now they are against the imperium so i'm against the world now uh paul takes this moment and i like how it's almost like a signal right there from jessica and he he puts some space between them he's ready for a fight they mm-hmm. both need a whole sphere of action to operate in and the moment he moves, though, Stilgar, like, whips his head right at him. I'm just Ooh, like, yeah. wait, Stilgar, wait. Stilgar's on high alert. Yeah, I think he's... I like, think he's always on high alert. Yeah, this is just his normal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to rate him on an alert system. He just <laughs> is alert at all times. And, uh, yeah, he calls him a likely cub, which uh, we must hear Gurney, Gurney Halleck must howl somewhere in across the <laughs> desert. Like, no! 
Safe, sir. <laughs> um, and then he uh, continues on, like, if your fugitives from the Harkonnens, it may be you're welcome among us. And Paul is like, ooh, is this, you know, we a trick? Is this, uh, are you trying to lure me into something? Mm-hmm. But he feels the need for, like, an immediate decision. And he ends up asking him, why should you welcome fugitives? And this, this impresses Jogar. Mm-hmm. He's sort of like, yeah, that's like, good, good. And a child who thinks and speaks like a man. Uh, we were told as much. <laughs> yeah, many times. This has been our constant description of mm-hmm. Paul. And, this uh, is their, their second meeting as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, I would say their, their first meeting. Paul, first Paul meeting. was present at the first, you know. They saw each other. Yeah, but he, no one was there to meet Paul. Yeah. Uh, the same way, like, none of the Harkonnen or the Atreides troopers get to be like, I met Stilgar. <laughs> like, you, know, you were in the room. Yeah. <laughs> They're there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, Paul was 15. <laughs> like, the fact that Stilgar even noticed him, it was only because there was a prophecy <laughs> talking about him. Otherwise, I think he would have disregarded this kid. Mm. This upstart. Uh, but he said it calls him out, like, well, now to answer your question, my young Wally, I'm one who does not pay the fi, the water tribute to the Harkonnens. Aye. This is why I might welcome a fugitive. Yeah, we're going to get tons of vocab words. Uh, yeah. So if anyone has not been hitting up the glossary at this point, we're going to walk it through a few. <laughs> Wally is an untried Fremen youth. Yeah, so already, Gurney again, insult. To <laughs> 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 merit. Um, but puts Paul in his place. Uh, we have Phi is described uh, correctly. It's the water tribute. Right, right. It's the chief species of tax on Arrakis. Um, and then do we have a third one? There? I think we have some more coming up here. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be right around the yeah, corner. Just... One after the other. Cause this is why we can't play the glossary game anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, would be, like, it would be over by yeah, the next like, chapter. I guess we're done this chapter. <laughs> You're going to have to keep repicking words. Yeah. As we right? go. Uh, so with this, Paul knows, uh, that Stilgar is holding back a little bit. He knows, he knows who they are at this point. Uh, just with how he spoke there. He can kind of read into his tones. Mm-hmm. And Stilgar then promptly kind of introduces himself. And Paul brings up that he remembers him from council. So, you know, hey, I was there. Uh, yeah, I was there. I was in the room. And Paul, the thing he offers is just like, yeah, we exchanged friends. You were there with the water, your friend, and we gave you Duncan Idaho. And uh, I guess that's not the right word right no, now. didn't quite hit the right spot. He He's failed a few times when he tried to win over Kynes the first time either. Like, yeah. He's not always going to hit that first home run. Because Stilgar retorts back of like, and Idaho returned, uh, abandoned us to return to his duke. Jessica Ooh. heard the shading of disgust in his voice. Yeah. Held herself prepared, prepared for attack. Yeah, he did not look upon that well. Well, because Stilgar basically like spoke up for Duncan, then Duncan just took off. I yeah. bet there were a lot of Fremen that didn't like Duncan. Well, and well, like we said, it was within like three days at most. Yeah, because it would have been to come back to follow the Lady Jessica and do that little stupid plan. Yeah, uh, and yeah, kind of in the long term, that would have cost them maybe their relationship with the Fremen a little bit. Yeah. That is crazy. And now we're just saying the ramifications not, of that. Not Leda's smoothest move. Mm. And a little little salt in the wound because we just lost Idaho. Yeah. And now we're just shitting all over his grave. Like, show some respect. So the second voice calls from the rocks above. And this is just trying to hurry Stilgar on. So this is my uh, the desert power within the troop here. 
uh, this is going to be our Jameis. Yeah. Uh, he keeps challenging Stogart at every turn here. And uh, we finally confirmed that Liet is the one who told them to seek out the Duke's boy mm-hmm. and the lady because he stand up. That's what you got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jessica notes already like, oh, Stogart's not really including me in his thoughts. <laughs> 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 doesn't mention me once. <laughs> <laughs> this is just like counsel with Thufir. <laughs> I can't I can't abide this. Oh god. And she's thinking, has he already passed his sentence? I mean he has. Sort of yeah, yeah. I guess I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He did as soon as he walked into that basin and knew where like they were both there. Yeah. You're right. Um and, but he's open to very quickly changing his mind. That's oh, uh, what I love. Yeah, just a little bit. Like it takes one second for that to occur. Um so the other voice keeps pushing Stogar back, and you know he's telling him like we don't have time for this test. And it's just like quiet down. It could be the least on our game. That's pretty important. We should take our time here. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's sit down for a sec. Yeah, and then the voice is like, "But the woman." And this is when Jessica really she again readies herself anew. Any relaxation? There's death in that feel. voice too. Death in that voice. She's ready. You know what that means? Like he's got a fighter voice. <gasps> Fighter also have like death in his voice, he murder in his voice. Yeah. yeah. But, okay. Here's the thing. I know you're trying to sell me a puppy right now, Derek. Come on. I've, I've, I've read the dirge. I know how this goes down. I know how it ends. Could be at the end of the whole story. Maybe <laughs> he know. dies heroically, saving us all. I don't like Jameis. <laughs> wow. Harsh. <laughs> trying to line in the sand already. <laughs> this is going to be my reverse psychology on you. Oh, no. <laughs> Seamus is like Paul's new stepdad. He's like a really, <laughs> yeah. really stand-up guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he recycles and everything. He's great. <laughs> Does it recycling? <laughs> it's a thing. So, uh, still goes like, yelling back, yes, the woman and her water. I got this. And the boys, again, Jameis being like, but the law, <laughs> the law. <laughs> Stogart's just like, God damn it, I know the law. Be quiet. Times change. I'm like, that's a pretty, that's going to be a bold statement for yeah. me. Like, that's normally the ways they go about it. Uh, it might be something very evident from, like, uh, the influence of the Kinds family in general. Like, they're the ones who have come in and started changes to occur within, like, their this whole social structure. Mm-hmm. Until then, it's been pretty rock solid from the time the Zensunis landed here until Parda infiltrated in. And uh, then Jameis throws back his, his best thing he's got. He's like, did Liet command this? <laughs> and Stilgar's just like, look, you heard the voice of the Cielago. Why do you press me? And I love that bringing up Liet, to me, that's like asking for the manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, <laughs> well, Dad said. <laughs> yeah, come on. It's just like, I'm going to beat you so hard <laughs> as soon as if I didn't have people to impress right now. Um, and then Jessica, though, she cues in on one word in particular here. Cielago. Cielago. She's able to pull a lot out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she realizes it's from the language of the ilm and the feek. <laughs> Two more uh, classic words for yeah. us. So we have uh, the ilm is uh, theology. The science of religious tradition, one of the half legendary origins of the Zensuni wanderer's faith. If you uh, do you got Fika right in there? Yeah, knowledge and religious law. Uh, the other half <laughs> of the legendary origins of the Zensuni wanderer's religion. That's right. Because I think I got both of those words. Uh, wasn't one the second half of yeah, the, yeah we, or we like did a, Fika. Yeah, yeah as and a then bonus. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, and then with this, she also is able to break down that it was a distrans that they got. So mm-hmm. she's kind of like knowing, uh, judging their capabilities, uh, their technological capabilities a little bit. Like, wow, they have this huge communication infrastructure really put in place and that it's all tailored to this environment in such a way. So Jameis, he pushes Stilgar again, and this prompt is kind of prompt Stilgar to explain his interest in all this here. And Stilgar, you know, laying it down now. Uh, and, uh, like, Jameis is sort of, like, pushing him to, like, explain everything for the people reading. Explain. <laughs> tell them what this is. Exposition. <laughs> I am the excuse. And uh, Stilgar tells him, like, my duty is the strength of the tribe. So we know that basically from what Naive means. We use that as one of our glossary game words. Mm. So they would uh, rather, like, die than be captured. Right. Like, they will always put the tribe first. Uh, this is my only duty. I need no one to remind me of it. This man-child interests me. He is full-fleshed. He has lived on much water. He has lived away from the father-son. He has not the eyes of the Abad. Yet he does not speak or act. Uh, yet he does not speak or act like a weakling of the pans. Nor did his father. How can this be? So, oh, can you bring up uh, Abad? Yeah, uh, right in the back. I didn't pull that one out. I might have, no, but I, I think you've talked about it quite a few times. Yeah, like, yeah. You know? It's going to be pretty much, I think, the uh, the native blue and blue, but I yeah. do just want to go word for word as so, best we can on all, right, all sure. these. Verbatim from the glossary. Mm-hmm. Characteristic effect of a high diet in melange, wherein the whites and pupils of the eyes turn a deep blue, indicative of deep melange addiction. Ooh, and we on that is the sclera. Mm-hmm. Which is what the encyclopedia used. And uh, I think one of the other glossary words was like uh, a jazz. A jazz. So that right? was uh, that was for the Benny Gesserit, though, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that was like the immutable prophecy. And I'm yeah. saying when we did that word, this was the one I was trying to think of. That's I was what like you were spitting thinking. out a yeah. few, and I was like, ooh, Abad, but I knew it's different. Um, so I'm just glad that they're all kind of coming up and we get to like reflect on them. Yeah. And having such a great frame of mind for them all. So, with that, that's pretty much Stilgar telling Jameis to shut up for the last time. I'm like, <laughs> look, we got to finish this chapter, Jameis. You really hold it. Stilgar takes words. off a glove. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keep my Fremen hands strong. <laughs> um, and Jameis is like, okay, he's going to be silent, but Jessica can hear him and he starts working his way down to the basin. Oh, yeah, he's ignoring that. Well, I mean, he's being silent, but yeah. he's still, like, up to no good in a way of just, like... He didn't say not to move. Yeah, or, or, exactly. Or, yeah, he's a, he's a petulant child. <laughs> he didn't say I couldn't climb down there and be a jerk some more. So that's what he's going to do for a little while. And uh, Stilgar kind of continues on. that The mm-hmm. voice of the Cielago suggested there'd be value to us in saving you two. And it's significant to me where, like, that tells us then that uh, Liette did include uh, Jessica in that message. It wasn't yeah. just Paul. It yeah. was like, at least consider the woman, but like, you make the call. Uh, right, right, right. It's, it's on you, Stilgar. Do get that boy, though. I'm pretty sure he's the one. I had a long dinner and I thought about this for a long time. <laughs> it's been on my mind. I showed him my secret maze. <laughs> yeah, my, my maze is so cool. Oh, I love that we get a little more backstory of that maze in here, too. Yeah. Because I told you she saw them more while she was there. Um, but that also does say that these weren't orders per se, sort of like a suggestion, right? But it, it is ultimately like non-binding. I think any of it, like if it doesn't endanger the tribe, don't take the risk, mm-hmm. continue on with the project as is. Now, Jessica, she does have Stilgar fully registered at this point. Um, 
But she figures she could use that one word, you know, cut him down, make him do whatever she wants. Yeah, but she's like, not going to. Yeah, it's too risky. He could be a really valuable asset. And I like that she uses the term un- unblunted. Mm. That is the way, you know, keep his blade sharp. This is We need to fully train Stilgar. Because uh, he's kind of, it looks, I think there's a lot more to him uh, that she's betting on than what even what we're seeing now. Jessica says that Paul's strength is basically a form of her training. Mm-hmm. And this is what you've witnessed here. And uh, Stilgar asks her pretty directly, like, oh, are you a reverend mother? Right through, which is like, uh, and it goes for the moment, Jessica put aside the implications of the question. <laughs> I just like, that says so much about the Fremen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just that you have those words. You would use that title in mm-hmm. this kind of place. But she does answer truthful, truthfully. She says, no, I'm not. Uh, and then, it, but I'm still valuable. <laughs> she tries to sell that, but it goes like, "You're okay? Are you desert trained?" Like, okay, no, I'm not. Apparently not because she said no. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, and like she doesn't know the ways of the desert very well. She's been picking him up from Paul. Like mm-hmm. she's got to be a straggler. Uh, and there's really no convincing Stogar. They kind of end with like it's a matter of reason. And she's like, you know, a man has their own. You make your own judgments. And he's mm-hmm. like, ah, I'm glad you see the reason of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot dally here to test you, woman. Do you understand? We do not want your shade to plague us. I will take the boy man, your son. He shall have my countenance, sanctuary in my tribe. But for you, woman, you understand there is nothing personal in it. It is the rule. Ishtalah. It is in the general interest. Is and that not enough? Yeah. So this is another glossary word we've had for a long time. I've been pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> like crazy. What? Get, get out of town. Um, and I realized that too. After like I uh, I was listening to an audiobook. I'm just like, wait, that sounds familiar. That can't be right. And yeah, I've just been like not even looking at the right word. <laughs> None yeah. of the same letters are there. So it's it's ta- uh, it's Tisla. It's Tisla. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but we've been calling it Ishtala for a long time. Yeah, it's hard to break. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, we try our best. Uh, <laughs> we try our best, You know, guys. we get the mic, we get the definition right. <laughs> <laughs> we do get the definition. Rule for the general welfare. Usually a preface to brutal necessity. Which brutal. is going to be, yeah, like leaving this woman here, to, well, or even killing her to take her water. And yeah. then still asking the boy to come along <laughs> as we, like, carry the corpse with us the rest of the way. <laughs> Going to get real dark real fast Ooh. if this doesn't turn out well. But what do you think about them? I think I kind of told you that they use Reverend Mother as a term. Right. But clearly that's part of the missionary protectiva. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's out of the ordinary. That's very atypical because Jessica is kind of put off by that, right? Like not a lot of missionary protectiva usually drop that kind of bomb into a, a culture. Yeah, seems like it'd be like a little, maybe it's too transparent of right. g- giving up the Bene Gesserit's game. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, whoa, that shouldn't be here. What's going on? So, I, I yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to watch that one kind of develop and flesh out. But there's something, there's something weird there. And the missionary protectiva, something like, it didn't go by the books. Mm-hmm. Or like anything is the Bene Gesserit too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it went normally. <laughs> it's like a true one. They broke all their vows in some ways. Um, I don't, oh, I, the other thing I love in that line is, uh, we'd not want your shade to plague us. Like, that's pretty neat. I'm just, I think it's just sort of like a cultural motif of just being able, like having your ghosts come along. There must be like a superstition there and so yeah. Um, but it's a really, I different. think, just, yeah, the idea of like, keep like, 
you understand we do this willingly because we don't want to have to deal with like all the negativity afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you have to kind of consent to yeah. it of like agreeing to part of this trial. Like uh, this is nothing personal. To you the, understand to the this, greater right? good. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. Ooh. I think I think that's the implication of that. I like that. There must be some like dark, dark, like ghost stories of like the Fremen that did Fremen ghost stories. Follow the I want band. a book. That'd be great. Ooh, oh, yeah, it would have, it would have a really cool title too. Like the Kitab Alabar. Like it just <laughs> on and on and on of like yeah. some terribleness. Um, so Paul at this, he's hearing these words and he does not understand like what's what coming. What are you talking about? Like, uh, so I want to clarify. And Stilgar just kind of continues that one person cannot bring destruction on an entire tribe. This cannot be allowed. Then we get to the excerpt I took out from uh, last week, Mike, where Jessica really plays it up. And she's, one, she's done with this conversation. Yeah, no, she got what she needed. <laughs> go, going from her point of view, actually. She's just like, okay, I'm not taking this shit so, anymore. Stilgar still got his intention on Jessica, but he's speaking to Paul, and Jessica just moves like the wind. Oh, is it? I thought it was the other way where he doesn't uh, he doesn't really acknowledge Paul and he still talks to Jessica. Kept his attention on Jessica. Flicked a glance across Paul. So yeah, kept his attention on Jessica. Yeah. Flicked a glance across Paul. But I think he's still talking at Jessica, though. And then that's how she gets him. And, like, and how this is like doubly... Uh, oh, I see. You're right, you're right. Because I think it's like anything Paul does gets that little cat glance of just like, you're not doing this without me being aware. <laughs> right. But I think that's sort of like the, and then amping up Jessica's move and how great it is. And that, like, even with the Fremen, like, watching her, the Fremen who is always on full alert, she does this little, like, slouching motion. She pretends to faint because it's the thing a weak off-worlder would do. And in that moment, Wiley's kind of, like, figuring out that this is a faint. She's already has him turned around and, boop, got him by, like, the throat. Uh, he doesn't even get his Chris knife out. Yeah. And she's ready to just snap him in two. And Paul, right away, like, as she begins to faint, he moves back two steps, and he just starts running to making it up into the rocks. And on his way there, some man, sort of like this figure, emerges in. And I love that Paul, like, well, not only does it, like, he hits somebody in the chest, he, like, judo chops his neck, like, <laughs> yeah. like a classic. This is very Austin Powers. <laughs> it's very 60s, like, TV show. ha <laughs> <laughs> He falls down. <laughs> That's why Jameis is so offended, because he got Judo <laughs> chopped up. Uh, Paul climbs his way up, and he took the weapon that the guy had, which mm. he identifies as a projectile weapon. And it's another indication of no shields. Mm-hmm. Keep having us remind, remind your hand, but it didn't. And uh, I don't know why, because again, we just ran from Shai Halut. You should not be surprised about shields. I don't know why anyone would I want one this at this point. this was very, very... Uh... Very what? This, this was this should have been hammered in on that Thopter ride with Kynes. Yeah, like, watching the whole like Thopter yeah. carry all go under. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we're still amazed every time. And now, as Paul is going up the rocks, there uh, there came a chorus of sharp spring clicks from the basin. These projectiles are just like ting 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 flicking off. Like one goes through his robe. Play airsoft. Yeah, well, sort of, but damn, we almost shot Paul. Like, <laughs> yeah. This could have been a very short book of like, oh, we killed the Lisan Hagaib. Leadership is very important in the Fremen culture. Without it, I think they're just all over the place, disorganized. Yeah. I feel like they're all about the Amtal rule. <laughs> just until it breaks, keep firing. Oh, We're going to find out if he's the chosen one, <laughs> one way or another. And uh, it takes, like, Stilgar, the roar of his voice, like, get back, you were, met lice. She'll break my neck if you come near. 
And uh, we found out, like, Stilgar, she's just full of great insults. Uh, yeah. In, like, the audio yeah, book, pro. they really hammer him home in it. Uh, so it was great to hear them all read out loud <laughs> with a little more character than mm. just, like, reading them. Uh, but lots of lots of worm related. We get a bunch of Fremen idioms. Like worm faced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jessica, like, she has them. Obviously, uh, Stilgar held in, like, bound, and she tells him, like, tell them to stop hunting my son. And he's just like, they've stopped, woman. <laughs> he's always just, like, whatever you exasperated. Say. Yeah, right. It's like everything. Great gods below. Why didn't you say you were a weirding woman and a fighter? Mm. It's like ah, that's where that comes from. Yeah. So I told you that was kind of fremen uh, oriented. I think that was like one of our earliest uh, that was, words. That, that was uh, that was the two bottle pilot that never aired. Ah, so it was one of the earliest. It ones was, it was no the one earliest one. About. Yeah. And weirding is idiomatic. Uh, that which partakes of the mystical or of witchcraft. Ooh, that's going to yeah. be a better answer. Witchy woman. Uh, and so I like, and this is where I said, like, instantly, Stilgar has already decided, like, no, we're keeping you. This is a keeper right here. <laughs> no, we, we want to take this one home. And Jessica tells him, like, look, get all your men down, get everyone in the basin, get them, you know, kind of all in the moonlight so she can see. And she tells him she knows how many there are. Is a total lie. She has no idea. She knew there was two. <laughs> She's gonna, imagine her surprise as they keep coming out like a clown, like a clown car. car. <laughs> 40 Fremen need to pile in here. 39 with the one she's holding. It's going to be a lot of people. <laughs> but this is a delicate moment. And uh, she's really banking on like trusting how sharp Stilgar seems. Right. Just like he seems very capable and has like a political and intrigue edge to him. So, Paul, he's climbed up the rocks now, and he wants to get to a vantage point where he can watch and kind of rest. Mm-hmm. So he gets to a ledge that I assume he can kind of finally lean down on or get a soft footing. And our scene takes us back to sort of a Stilgar. And he's just getting, uh, anytime he even slightly crosses Jessica, I just like to think she just twists his arm just a little bit a more. A little bit more. <laughs> yep. Because it's like, look, and if I refuse, which is like, what are you, why are you even saying that? You're, like, we all know what happens, but she twists it and he goes, ah, <laughs> leave me, woman. <laughs> me, no harm. Uh, he's like, if you can do this to the strongest among us, among us you're worth 10 times your weight in water. That, that's, that's a claim. hefty price. Yeah. Because we know that's like even more valuable than spice at this point. Right. So I don't even know how to scale that to a Solari, but she is priceless. And uh, Jessica is, I feel like she's just uh, acting on her earlier thought that they were looking for a better prophecy. Mm-hmm. And in her previous position in this conversation, Stilgar held all the power and she wasn't going to have any way to sort of like inflict that prophecy on them. Now she is in a point of control and can really like move right. everyone where she needs them to be. Uh, Cause we're going to end up touching. She has sort of like a death thought of like all this she's doing so that Paul can learn as much as he needs to and be a part of this people. Even if that knowledge comes at her life. Mm-hmm. So as I said, anytime Stilgar crosses her, he gets a little twist. He uh, <laughs> makes the mistake of disrespecting the Duke here. <laughs> and uh, Jessica, like I said, she's thinking of this prophecy. goes, now the test of reason. Who ask after Lisan Agib? And Stogar leads into like, uh, you could be the focal legend, but yada, yada, all I know is you can't Until you've been tested. I cannot say yes. Well, yeah, yeah, I'll believe it when it's been tested. Yeah. 
And then, uh, but you came here with this stupid duke. <laughs> and that one, I feel like she got a little satisfaction out of. <laughs> that was for her. Yeah. <laughs> she hasn't gotten hurt anybody about Love this audible yet. pop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she puts it right back into place. And he's sort of like, I don't care if you kill me. He was honorable and brave, but it was stupid to put himself for the way of the Harkonnen fists. They sort of just like silence between them of like, this is the one that I can't push back on that, I guess. It's and like, you're right. She's like, he had no choice. But we will not argue. <laughs> we don't got time for this. I could explain it to you, but just trust me. Tell that guy over there to stop bringing his knife out. Yeah, this guy, well, I think he has another like Mala pistol at that. Oh, sort of bringing that up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, I don't think she'd be as afraid for him at the distance. And because he's bringing it to bear on her. And uh, if she doesn't, though, she's like, I will rid the universe of you and take him next. And you! Like, yeah, still got right into that guy. Do what she says, you worm-faced, crawling, sand-brained piece of lizard turd. That was good. And then follows up with, do it or I'll help her dismember you. <laughs> Which that, I would love to see that kind of buddy cop moment of both of them beating the shit out of this one guy. There's a new hierarchy here. A new sheriff in town. <laughs> And uh, Jessica demands that Stilgar explain doing the Fremen his wish for her. This is going to be like, they need to hear it from you clearly. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. let's settle all of this right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he tells them, like, look, this weirding ability, this is going to be like, this is a weapon that no search could find. Right, because when they need to go into the, the sinks and pans to blend in with the... Uh, the, the pans in the cities. Or the pans, sorry. The, yeah, yeah. Sorry. The pans in the cities, they need to blend in. And they can't carry any sort of weapons with them. They can't bring their uh, Chris knives because those are sacred weapons. Yeah, you can't let, 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 that al- let alone that one's holy. Yeah, but yeah. Can't bring any weapons in general. You know, raise too much alarm. So, like, if we had this kind of a training, oh, a weapon you, that you can't uh, take away, yep. can't detect. The Harkonnens would be that much more screwed. And uh, if she agrees to teach the weirding way, Stilgar will give his countenance to both of them. And Jessica asks, like, well, how can we be sure of your word? And this is like Stilgar, he doesn't, uh, didn't take this one too well. That banter is definitely gone. Mm-hmm. And there's like an edge of bitterness. And he says, out here, woman, we carry no papers for contracts. We make no evening promises to be broken at dawn. When a man says a thing, that's a contract. As leader of my people, I've put them in bond to my word. Ooh. Like, that's perfect. You know, it ends with like, um, your water shall mingle with our water. That's how we make deals out here. Now, Stilgar lets him know, like, he can't speak for all Fremen yet. Only Liet speaks for all Fremen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he's willing to give them secrecy, which I think is interesting, because uh, it's like they're not even going to tell other Sietches about them. Mm-hmm. They would be that secret. Like, only Stilgar's band's going to know about this or talk about this. Uh, so that's cool that there's a little compartmentalization. And it's really good for if you are going to run a guerrilla war. That's how you do it. Because yeah. uh, then no one can say anything. Uh, and he also tells her the Harkonnens already think them dead, so they won't be searching for uh, a prey that's already lost. So Jessica is thinking, like, okay, there's there's some safety in that. Uh, but these people do have this good communication, which we low because of the distrans. Right. And it's with that she's just like, that could make them a traitor. Like, somebody could send a message out. That is a possibility here. Even with Stilgar giving a word. I think it's like having Jameis is like already be the upset here. It's mm-hmm. like... Clearly, there can be um, some dis- dissent in the ranks, right? Right. And uh, Stilgar is sort of like, look, I, he just says, like, I will say it once more. I've given the, my tribe's word bond. My people know that you are worth to us now. What could a Harkonnen give us? Our freedom? Ha. 
No, you are the Takwa, that which binds us more than all the spice in the hearkening coffers. Ah, Takwa. Takwa. That was a good one. That one I remember nailing out of the park because uh, I remember it from Dune Messiah when. Uh, oh, actually. Didn't you say there was someone called uh, with the name of Takwa or something like no, that? No, uh, that's Ganema. Ganema, that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're actually coming up on Ganema pretty soon. Uh, I think it's going to be in book two. Uh, but Takwa was mentioned by actually Cheney of all people later on. Yeah. Uh, she's the character I remember saying it. So in this one, what what do we got for Takwa? Takwa, literally, literally the price of freedom. That's yeah, something what it verbatim of, is something of great value that which a deity demands of a mortal and the fear provoked by the demand. Oh, Ooh, I don't remember. I was going over that part of yeah, it. Yeah, we, we talked about some, it briefly. I, I'm sure we did because you definitely you always pull like the and full you were definition. wowed by that. Every time, every time it gets me <laughs> and the fear provoked by the demand that that's pretty cool. It's pretty good. That, that's like palpable. That's what the God mm. really needs. That's that sweet sauce. <laughs> that's that sweet sauce. Mmm, <laughs> fear. Fear. <laughs> if I don't get a fear, it doesn't count. <laughs> um, so with that, uh, Jessica accepts this and she releases Stilgar. Uh, it is like Stilgar does still have to ask first. I'm just mm. like. So we good? <laughs> you let me go? And she's like, so be it. And she lets him go. I think otherwise she was good to hold him yeah, until, yeah, yeah. until he did say something and ask permission. And uh, she thinks to herself, like, this is the test Mashad. But Paul must know about them, even if I die for his knowledge. Oh, no. man. Where does, Te- the yeah, glossary. Dude, should I just live here in the glossary? Oh, she would have kept a counter going. Uh, test Mashad, any test in which honor, defined as spiritual standing, is at stake. That's it. Because, like, right now, she wants to install Paul as their Messiah. Yeah. That's what she's pushing for. Right, right, right. We're like, uh, I like, uh, I think we're getting... Because that guarantees safety right now. Yeah, we're getting really close to the ascendancy line, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Uh, but so, like, that is her only concern. She sees all the threads of the missionary productiva, and she is just yanking at them. Right, right, right. To get herself in a safe spot. I mean, spot. that's what it's there for. Yeah, ex- yeah, that was the whole point of it. And no better person is what we were told coming into the situation. Mm-hmm. So, watching her, just do, she's, like, masterfully doing it, too. I don't think she's messed up yet. No. With how she dealt with mates and how she's dealt with uh, kinds as well as Stilgar thus far. She's been on point. So Paul, uh, at this point, he's seeing, I think Jessica, when she releases um, Stilgar, he steps forward and she kind of does well. So Paul needs to adjust his view to keep them in sight. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, he hears this breathing behind him. Someone's been creeping up on him this whole time. And right then, Stilgar kind of yells up. uh, He tells for Chaney to stop hunting Paul. Leave that boy alone, essentially. And I don't know why it's, like, ambiguous about the gender at first. Of just saying, like, if it was a boy or girl's voice, Paul couldn't tell. Of just kind of keeping his hair, like, who is it going to be? <laughs> and uh, but it, Oh, man, it's not even just behind him. It's right above him. Yeah, like, above and behind. But I like that it seemed like she didn't know where he was until he moved the second time. Like, I think they were both, like, ships in the night. You, you think so? Kind of. Because uh, she does say, like, she wouldn't have helped uh, let him hurt anybody. Oh, yeah, because uh, she was heavily breathing and just suddenly still because she saw him move. Probably. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And otherwise she she could have grabbed him at any point. So I, I just feel like they both, <laughs> They were like, back-to-back playing battleships. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which Equally matched people. And that's why, they're star-crossed lovers, so that's how I want it to be. And uh, this is going to end up being the girl from Paul's dreams. And... Uh, 
We have Stilgar. He's not done with insulting people yet. He's got one for everybody. He calls yeah. her a spawn of a lizard. But I like that she sort of like mumbles back, call me spawn of a lizard. <laughs> Just not loud enough for Stilgar to hear. <laughs> and uh, with this, all the Fremen, they kind of have moved into the basement of the basin. And uh, Stilgar asks, like, all right, well, how are we going to trust you? You know, turning this back on her now. Mm-hmm. And Jessica says, we at the Bene Gesserit don't break our vows any more than you do. Which is just like... Dropping that BG. Paul's right there. Like, your your broken vow is watching you. You guys break well, your vow. It wasn't back. a vow. It was an order. <laughs> oh, great. Touche. Is that it? James is like, yeah. That's how you play it. <laughs> and then my Peter goes, but didn't we take a vow to follow orders? <laughs> It's all circular. <laughs> so there's this protracted silence, then multiple hissings of a Bene Gesserit witch. Man, even they got the derogatory term. Yeah. But I like that they're, uh, I think they're just kind of saying it in the sense of like talking about the prophecy mm-hmm. and a lot of whispers kind of between them all being silent. But at the them air. saying that, Paul's like, mm, just in case, he takes out his gun again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, Stilgar shares that Mapes had provided a report on Jessica, but that she still must be tested. We can't rely on that alone. Mapes is bringing crucial intel back. Uh, it does, that, that is our confirmation of her as spy master. Mm-hmm. And she sent that one. That was her last thing she got out of the house then. Mm-hmm. Sent back. So we had two reports. Kinds. From very important individuals. Yeah, just being kinds and mates, like coming back on the royal family, on the yeah, the royal family essentially, being like talking about them. So I think it's really interesting. And how integrated the Fremen got into the ducal household in the first weeks. Yeah, so, yeah they were everywhere. And uh, Jessica is relieved that the missionary protectiva has left these religious safety valves everywhere. Like, she can easily kind of use all these. I and love that term, religious safety valves. Safety valves, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're just sort of installed. You know, missionary, they're plumbers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's religion but an elaborate series Magical of Magical plumbers. <laughs> All I can think of is Mario now. Yeah, he's basically a missionary. He's a. Eventually, we get men into the organization, and that's what they do. They get overalls. Oh my god! You go install a religion. Um, So she is now ready to like introduce some prophecy at them, really get them going here. And she says, uh, "The seeress who brought you the legend, she gave it under the bindings of Karama and Ajaz, the miracle and the inimitable." Blah, 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 blah. In- in- <laughs> yeah, inimitable. yeah, Mike, you were saying inimitable inimitability <laughs> of the prophecy. <laughs> this I know. Do you wish a sign? Because <laughs> she'll write that word down if it's hard for them to read. <laughs> She takes out a stick and starts writing in the sand. So this is where Jessica hits him with a little double whammy. So she's going to start off with some straight um, Bene Gesserit voodoo here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw out some words at you that I know do stuff because of the missionary protectiva. Mm -hmm. See see what you react to. Yeah, we got a Karama. You got that one right in there? Mm -hmm. It's a miracle. A miracle. An action initiated by the spirit world. Yeah. My favorite one. And that was uh, I got because of the card in the board game. And uh, we follow that one up with Ijaz, which does also get like its description right in there. If you got that, do you have that in the glossary? Ijaz, yeah. Yeah. We talked about that recently. Prophecy that by its very nature cannot be denied. Immutable prophecy. Immutable prophecy. Yeah, we just talked about that because I brought it up with the bod. Uh, Come back. 
So I like she brings both those, and those do cause a reaction. Like Stuncar's nostril flares, uh, and he's like, "Look, we don't have time for the rights." And I like she's just like pushing his buttons. Like I feel like Kinds, he wants to do the like we can do this for right now, but like <laughs> we really got to get going. I'm under orders. And uh, then Jessica recalls a chart that Kinds had shown her while they were arranging emergency escape routes. So. This before, we just brought up, uh, I think a little after that Kinds chapter of just if Fremen wrote stuff down. Mm-hmm. And you were assuming they don't write anything down. They were, I think it was, maybe this is the Kyle the Fremen chapter. But I was going to be like, no, no, no. We'll get to a point where it does mention Kinds wrote some stuff down. Yeah. <laughs> like clearly some pretty big stuff. <laughs> and I like how there was just a chart with some places on it. She's just like, I guess I might need to remember that. Take <laughs> so, a yeah. once over, and then we're going to use that to trick a naive later on and make you think you're magical. Mm-hmm. But it's like the most Kaiser so safe thing. I'm <laughs> just like, <laughs> thing around the room. Okay. Sietch Tabar. Ah, perhaps when we get to Sietch Tabar, Stilgar. This little. <gasps> yeah. And the revelation shook him. <laughs> like, and she's just like, oh. If only he knew the tricks we use. <laughs> um, these beautiful, these Fremen are beautifully prepared to believe in us. Just like I like that. She always feels a little bit of tinge of guilt. In, yeah, in I mean, I would too. Yeah, because they buy it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, you know you're playing with something that they've believed their entire life just to save you in this for generations. Yeah, yeah. Since whenever this uh, mis- uh, missionary protective got here, I wonder how long ago it was. Ooh, that's a good one. I uh, I think we get close to a clue. Okay, I don't know if we get a full answer, um, but we'll uh, we're gonna we're gonna touch on some cool stuff in the deep dive today. Right. Uh, get us closer to that answer. Um, so like I said, she gets some of that kind of one-two punch, and now when they leave to go, because again, Stilgar's just like, look, we don't got time with the rights. You keep bringing this up. Uh, Jessica makes sure that she kind of nods and that's letting her go. We're going with my permission. Don't forget, I'm in charge now a little mm. bit. She's really siphoned control, uh, yeah, and created a position for herself within this sort of <laughs> tribe of just out of her value, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Jessica says, you know, like, look, we have, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Stilgar, he tries to order Paul down at this point, telling mm-hmm. him to get down here and tells Jessica, like, how noisy he was getting up there. And Jessica's just like, well, yes, we have, we have much to teach each other, don't yeah, we? Gurney's having, like, a stroke. <laughs> you there, lad. <laughs> there are only, like, two words. <laughs> and Jessica, in saying that they have something to teach each other, she does reference of, like, you know, like, Paul took down your men in the bushes there. Don't forget that. And this is, um... Like, what? Where? Paul also only listens to my commands. And this is sort of, like, doubly hit Stilgar. I'm just like, ooh. One, Paul knows the weirding way. Very impressive. Yeah. And Paul knows discipline. Even more impressive, probably. For a 15-year-old, yeah. Exactly, for a 15-year-old. And uh, Jessica then orders Paul down, and that, that Paul actually responds to. And uh, with it, Paul getting up, this is where he kind of sees Cheney, and she you know, introduces herself to him while pointing a gun at him. Yeah. I love that. Well, that's a great way for them to meet. Um, <laughs> and she says, I am Cheney, daughter of Liette. That's ah! where we get it. She's dropping bombs in it. I feel like oh, we have terrible news for you. Um, <laughs> we'll wait. We'll wait. Um, but no son of kinds. We get daughter of Liet. And the voice was lifting, half filled with laughter. She tells him, like, I would not have permitted you to harm my companions. <laughs> this is like laying down the foundation of this relationship right here. 
And uh, Paul had seen his face in so many visions. He like can think back to telling guys hell behind him, like, I will meet her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is from this vision currently, this reality, is in uh, from no dream he ever had. He's never seen this channel. This, or this is like path. the absolute like first time. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, and just like he had seen other first times of meeting her. Like, so it should be different. Like how he had had that vision on the sand. Wait, does it say that he'd seen other first times? Uh, well, just in highlighting it, this is in the face that he'd seen in no vision like this. And I'm comparing it to like when he was on that sand and he known he had been there before, but he had been there with Idaho before. He had never stood there without him. No, I think he just, he knew he was going to meet this person. He really dreamed of her before, but he's never dreamed of, like, the moment where they met. There's That's a, what I interpret moment. that as. Okay, okay, I take it as that. I'm pushing back. I think he has. I, I, think, that, I think you're insinuating a bit too much. Well, I think it's just reinforcing the fact that he's on this alternate path of history. From wherever we started and where Paul right, had those no early dreams. It, yeah, it, exactly. Well, it's been one of small, it keeps changing. And he, How did like, he mess up originally then? What did he do to screw this up so bad? Oh, Mike, we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna find out. We're gonna get to the end and have a little ret- retrospective. Uh, oh. I think we're gonna have a we're gonna have a lot to look back on and be like, wait, at what point did this thing really occur? What was the guiding force or the driving factor here? Mm. I think I think I'll win you over to my kind of view of it. All um, right, all right. But I think either one is kind of fair because it's like it's such a wild power for him. And it's so undefined for us, mm-hmm. uh, where we don't know his every dream that he's possibly had into it. But uh, we follow this up with a great Fremen idiom where Chani kind of teases him and says, you were a noisy and shy halud in a rage, and you took the most difficult way up here. Follow <laughs> me. I'll show you an easier way down. And she moves like a gazelle down the rocks. And like I love Paul. He just ends up blushing. It's like, hi, my name's Chani, and you're a dumb dumb. <laughs> 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 do, 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 do. <laughs> Off I go. And it's just Paul, at least Paul blushing like he's totally abashed. And uh, he's grateful for the darkness to hide that from, which I love. He just, we've had this crazy week getting here, and we have a very like high school moment for Paul. Yeah, we're like, reminded of his age. Yeah. <laughs> we're just like in the halls at school, and he just got completely shown up. And uh, it says, That girl, she was like a touch of destiny. He felt caught up on a wave, in tune with emotion that lifted all of his spirits. Oh. It's like, Paul, you just have a crush. Yeah. <laughs> you just never met kids by, before. By word. <laughs> yeah. They were all in the orphan room. Oh, the, oh, well, he had been an orphan. He was so close. They had school dances in the orphan room. <laughs> they, Gurney played all the music. Yeah. It's a great time. Um, and I love, so once they've uh, like joined down in the basement, Paul follows uh, Chaney down. And Jessica gives him a wry smile right when he shows yeah. up. And so like, oh, I, I saw that, son. Uh, so even then, she gets to kind of enjoy that moment. But then we're right back to talking with Stilgar. And we got we to gotta resolve the end of our situation here. And uh, she's sort of saying, like, look, this is going to be a good exchange of teachings. I hope, you know, there's no anger out of violence. But it seemed necessary. You were, seemed like you're going to make a mistake. Make a mistake. And Stilgar says, to save one from a mistake is a gift of paradise. Ooh. Have you heard that before, Mike? No. How dare you? Where's the problem? Well, Mike, uh, we had a contentious battle in the glossary game one time, and Laurel wrote in on the Alamo Mithal using this very line at the beginning for my saving graces, which is my rallying cry. <laughs> to save one from a mistake is a gift of paradise because you were going to give me not the point. <laughs> you would have fallen from the Surat, Mike, and been lost. No. 
<laughs> so I just want to point that back to go way back to that email. Like one of our first emails that came in. That uh, yeah, that totally went right above me. So that's from this part in Stilgar, which I mean, half our glossary game is from this chapter. So <laughs> might as well throw an email in there too. Yeah, I mean, ooh, holy crap! Ooh, distrans. It wasn't branded yet. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in Stilgar, he touches his lips with his left hand, which I guess is some sort of symbol, much like the fist of the ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fist to the ear, though, at this point, I'm just convinced it's like a hear no evil kind of thing. Maybe. I don't know. That's what I got. It just keeps coming up. And uh, he lifts the weapon away from Paul, which I like just takes it right from his <laughs> waist. Like, Tosses it to a companion, which we've learned was Jameis, who had like gone to intercept. Yep. That, yeah. So that Jameis had gone to the was just like, he was kind of pissed. <laughs> yeah. Jameis is not pleased. Uh, and Jessica comments, you know, he, you know, once he takes it away, tells, you know, you'll have a pistol when you've earned it, lad. And Jessica tells him, like, he has all the weapons that he needs. And this is just to make Stogar think about how Paul got that gun. And uh, with that, I, he's sort of, oh, yeah. I'd also like to point out that I think that uh, Gurney is foaming at the mouth and in a rage, just like throwing things <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <in> the smuggler's <laughs> den. This happens to Gurney every now and then. <laughs> we don't know what sets him off. <laughs> just shits foaming. <laughs> You just gotta lock the door until he settles down. He like hulks out. Throw a, little a battle bit. set in there. <laughs> he had to calm him down. There's like one song yeah. that brings Gurney back. He'll, he'll never toss the battle set. That's the one he won't do. Never, never. Now, uh, Stilgar glances at the man, uh, Paul had subdued, and this is Jameis. And the man stood at one side, head lowered, breathing heavily. And he's just like, "Oh, you're a difficult woman," Stilgar says, and he. Uh, Holds out his hands to his companions and he snaps his fingers and we get another line of Katushki Bakate. Now, Mike. Bakate, what's that mean? It means gypsy sorcery and fortune telling time. <laughs> like, <laughs> what I, do we I got? got one more. So this one is that's, not that's from the same book? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, same one. Charles Godfrey Leland, eighteen ninety one. Yeah. What uh, was the name of the book again? Uh Gypsy Sorcery and Fortune Telling. I'm still curious about that man's credentials on the subject matter. Oh, yeah. All, all anecdotal. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. I think it even comes with like a disclaimer in the beginning. I mean, like, he just talked to some drunk people. It's cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, as long as he did that, I guess. Yeah, you know, he just, hey, he did better than most. Uh, but, so this one, Frank actually only took a little bit from and then just swaps in uh, the baka being an Arabic term. Mm. But it's pretty close where the line I have is uh, kushti bak tuwelen. Aram. And then it uh, goes on, but I'm just going to read you the translation. And basically it comes to this little shorthand of how it's always lucky to run into a Romani. Mm. So it's, uh, when you're going along the street, it's lucky a gypsy man to meet. Why'd you go on a a little Irish accent there? When you're going along the street, it's lucky a gypsy man to meet. How can you not? (laughs) How could you not? Get a little jig into it. Uh... But, so obviously it changes to something completely different with this one because our Baca is going to refer to... Ooh, you, know, you actually got the glossary so yeah. far in this one. Give me Baca. In the Furman legend, it is the weeper who mourns for all mankind. And so we're going to make the kerchief of the Baca, which is so that's what I think he's asking for. And, like, it's just, you know, can I get... Give me two kerchiefs of the Baca or something like that is what he's, like, saying to the people. I watched a lot of anime, and Baca means idiot ah. in Japanese. <laughs> Well, we're not going to use that. In so I thought that when I first read it, I'm like, nah, it's probably not right. Let me go to the glossary <laughs> real quick. It's not going to rely on that instinct. 
And uh, yeah, I guess some of these squares of gauze unfold out. It must be like a thin little kerchief, and he ties yeah. it around, and that's going to be our sign that you're part of um, CH Tabar, essentially. Yeah. I love that. And so if you ever get separated, other Fremen will recognize that. So Stogar, he then kind of moves amongst his band, inspecting them. He gives uh, Paul's Frem kit to someone else to carry. So, like, everything's getting distributed. And uh, then Stogar tells Cheney to uh, take Paul under his wing, mm-hmm. be sort of responsible for him. And she calls Paul uh, a child man. And once again, we hear Gurney bellow over <laughs> the sand. <laughs> you think it's Shia Halud, but really? <laughs> yeah. All the worms, like, stop. Like, <laughs> a, a greater demon is here in the desert now. And uh, Paul starts to correct her when Stilgar kind of cuts him off. <laughs> and he's like, look, we'll give you a name, Manly, in the time of the Mina, at the test of Hockle. And uh, so we get two more words. Ockle. That was the one that I super butchered because I didn't know, like, I thought that it was, was that. Tough. Well, you didn't know if it was just uh, an, an abbreviation. Of just, oh, no, I thought it was the abbreviation, but it's really just the word in its own right. And Ockle means the test of reason. Originally, oh. the seven mystic questions beginning, who is it that thinks? Ooh, that's really deep. And then uh, what about the Mina? Yeah. The M-I-H-N-A. Because I remember I got that one wrong in the uh, when the word came around. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, the season for testing for many youths who wish admittance to manhood. Hey, I think I think Paul sort of had the uh, the crash course so far. Yeah, and well, I mean, not well, necessarily in fremen training, but in just like Paul. I think Paul definitely hit the manhood and just like let's open up your mind to all the secrets of the universe and the future. What? Yeah, well, on a different on a different spectrum, he's been training on the fremen one. You were actually going to find he's pretty behind. So his time oh. Amina should have already happened. I think it should have been like around thirteen or so. Uh, so Paul's going to be lagging and trying to catch up with the rest of the Fremen if we're going to get him there. But I love that that's like, they're just telling him right out, like, don't worry about your name. We'll give you a name when it's time. You earn you think that's everything. Why, that's why they always call Jessica woman and they call Paul lad, just because in the Fremen's eyes, they just don't have a name. Yeah, especially right now. There's It's like, a, well, and a little bit of distancing. I think it's like, right, because uh, oh, you're others. You're not part of the tribe. Right, well, it's not even just the tribe. Like, there's a Fremen name for everything. Because even uh, even Beast Raban has a Fremen name in a way. Budiranaya, the demon. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a little different. I think when we say Fremen name, though, we're usually like you and I are referring to like the idea that within Paul there like, has like Usal and Moadib, right? Right. Like right. that Sietch name and stuff like that. Uh, I'll give you there is a Fremen name for for the Beast Raban, yeah, but it's not like out of respect or. Mm. There's no uh, secrecy to it either. Like, I don't think they'd care if a smuggler learned that name. They'd be like, hell yeah, call him that. Tell everyone Fair. you know. Um, Fair. They didn't give Duncan a name either that I noticed. Uh, no, I mean, I don't think... Dun- I mean, he was only there for three days. Like, What do you think Duncan's name was? He had to have gotten a name. No, no, I'm telling you he didn't. For oh. sure. I don't think Duncan was ever fully integrated. And especially he disrespected them. Like I think he was making his way, but like you still got to jump through some hoops. Mm. You know we got we got to earn our rights here. Now th- these guys happen to. I mean Paul is even he's coming in with a Liat Kynes approval. We got like a mate signing off on this, and we're still not going to get a name today. We're still like you got to wait. You're on the waiting list. Uh, once we get to the Mina, so once we come around to that. So, and with this, this is all using all these words and hitting his home. It's like, uh, there's so much that they don't know about each other. Right. But Stilgar is just determined to move before the sun is up on them. So, and, uh, uh, 
I think this is when uh, Jessica also exhausts the breadth of like, let me just try some words and see how it uh, lands on them. Where she's like, my son's already been tested with the gum Jabbar. And so it's just like, I guess we still need to learn about each other because I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm throwing that out there. It like causes a little like, uh, ooh, it definitely means something to them, which is cool that they know what that mm. is too, right? Like it causes a stirring within them. But they just, again, they're like, we don't have time for this. Like when that does come along, it will. And we get Jameis up. And I love every time we woke Jameis up about this, he's like, it was an accident. Like, <laughs> <laughs> nothing happened. I slipped. I fell. <laughs> it's all nothing Nothing bad. I didn't get uh, hit over by I a kid. I don't like Jameis. You know, I mean, why, Mike? Up to I don't man. like Jameis. <laughs> Do you know what he does at the Siet? He takes care of all the wounded Cielagos. Does he and really? He, he nurses them back to health by hand. Are you just telling me this? So I'll try it. Oh, moving on. Oh, um, oh. <laughs> uh, Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Jessica, she stares at this man, Jameis. His was the voice that argued with Stilgar from the rocks. His was the voice with death in it. Stilgar had seen fit to reinforce his orders with this Jameis. Because he tells Jameis when getting up, like, you two are watching out for Paul. Like, I don't want him to even miss a step or lose a drop of water. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, putting his responsibilities on you. So, no revenge is going to be taken out on him. And uh, as we're all moving out, he signals out uh, two other Fremen who are going to, like, they're going to go behind this whole band and just focus on sweeping up tracks. And especially because we have two people who don't really know what they're doing, it's going to be a little harder. Right. So we get Laris and Farouk. Do you want to take either of these puppies home? Yeah, I'll take Farouk. (gasps) I'm glad he took Farouk, Mike. (laughs) I'll take Farouk. Farouk does show up in the next book. Yeah! He is literally, (laughs) I think, in, like, chapter one or two. I'll take Farouk home. Farouk uh, is there. And we get to see kind of where he ends up after everything that goes down in this book. That's exciting. He's not really a major player in the rest of this story, though. But uh, (laughs) it is the only name that kind of comes up. And uh, I remember reading it. I didn't ever pick it up on my first run through. Mm -hmm. And then when going back through Dune. Wait a second. I know that man. I'm like, <laughs> it is, it's you. So it's great to see him here. And like, he's just going to clean her footprints up on the way out. He's an accomplished man. And uh, so Jessica, she falls into step besides us, Dogar, counting heads. This is where we get to count. They're 42 now with uh, her and Paul joining their troop. And she thinks of like, wow, they travel as a military company, even the girl Cheney. And Paul has to put down this sort of uh, the black feeling of being caught by a girl. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Oh. Paints that in some dark colors. Damn. Like, you, are a, you are a child, I guess, that moping teen. It just hasn't shown so much before. <laughs> and uh, But then the mention of the Gom Jabbar kind of overrides this. And we get him thinking back to the Tingling hand of remembered and, pain. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Which is fitting for, hasn't this all been in the light of the moon that has the... Uh, with the hand symbol on it? We don't know if it's that one or not, do we? It's, I think it says second moon. That's what we're on. Oh, so you're right. The second moon. It's, oh, no. Second moon is the Moadib. It's the first The first moon is the I hand. I don't know. That we, uh, yeah, we, we crossed the uh, the desert over for it. So that, that's okay. That's, uh, it would just be a cool little bit. Um, now, Jessica is like sort of marveling uh, at how these, how they move through. And everyone's moving. Like this whole band is like a ghost. And we have Cheney sort of like chastising Paul a little bit, or sort of like instructing him, I guess. I think this is in like a good, um, from a good position, or just coming from a good place, and like telling him, watch where you go. You don't even want your robe to leave a single thread like caught mm-hmm. on a tree. Like that's how careful they're going to be moving through. But we get Jessica finally in her head tossing over one of these words, C-H. She's like, what this means? 
like originally this Chacopsa word was a meeting place in a time of danger. And the fact that it, it is now just the name for like their place of, uh, you know, their home. Right. That's all it's what changed into. Now language is just kind of constantly in flux. Well, I mean, aren't they always in sort of a place of danger being on Dune? That's the point. Yeah. Well, the point, like, initially, though, they didn't live in a Sietch. They mm-hmm. have had, like, they would have lived in the pan and stuff before, like, the Imperium came here. Right. Like, they wouldn't have chosen to live in Sietch. Oh, but interesting. But then they got pushed out. So then the place that it was an emergency place became their permanent place. I think that that's really a nice little piece of flavor in there. Otherwise, I would have just assumed it meant, like, cave. Yeah, the whole time? Yeah, the whole and, time. And so this is telling us that, like... I think the definition to the current Fremen has been lost mm-hmm. and that like, they don't remember that it's changed much in the way. Like uh, when we did this in Sunni history, some things would just be like forgotten within like a generation. Right. Cause you get comfortable um, for us. If we were going to take a step mic and open up another book, we'd open up savers of paradise. Of course, well, of course, Leslie, yes. Leslie Blanche's masterpiece. And uh, she would tell us that Sietch and Tabar are both words from camp. Uh, and they were Ooh. borrowed from the Cossacks. Yeah, so were, bo- they were both those the actual meanings as well. Like, yeah, yeah, like they are actually both mean the same thing. So oh, we're, really? We're going to camp, 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 camp. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so Sietch and Tavar are just the different budget words for summer camp. camp. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, this, this is really, it's going to be one of the best of the best, though. <laughs> of all the Fremen Sietches, like Tavar, it's, it's, it's the a pretty good spot. One. It's a pretty yeah, good it's one. like our capital city. The Ivy League of summer camps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, with 42 people in the desert, too, they're not making, like, any sounds. Nothing. Yeah, that's, that's impressive. Like, like a whole like, company. Just moves like a ghost. It's like they were never there. And especially if you were seeing, like, behind where uh, Laris and Farouk are, like, sweeping up, yep. it'd just be nothing. Just a little wisp. Good at his job. You might even just see a little Moadib hop across, and, like, that's it. That's all that there was there. Uh, so this brings us to our, our closing uh, little paragraph here I got for us. So, uh, we move well, Stugar said. With Shai Halud's favor, we'll reach Cave of Ridges before dawn. Jessica nodded, conserving her strength. Sensing the terrible fatigue she'd held at bay by force of will, and she admitted it by the force of elation. Her mind focused on the value of this troop, seeing what was revealed here about the Fremen culture. All of them, she thought, an entire culture trained to military order. What a priceless thing is here for an outcast duke. Yeah. Goodbye. Pretty good. But, and like, right there, already her, like, Using feeling like she has sort of ownership of them in a way, or the or the right to use them in right. that manner, uh, I think is a little uh, imperialistic of <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I don't see uh, not fully. Convinced, I mean, but. she's very, very blatantly using their faith against them to her own uh, benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that second, so like that though is I get like the Bene Gesserit part for like right. her survival. Using them for Paul's, like, ascendancy is a totally different thing, I think. That's, like, a whole nother degree of control that uh, changes it a little bit. I would give her the first one. The column B, not so much. Uh, it's definitely going to cross a line here. I don't know, because I think earlier uh, she talks about, oh, even the missionary protected you this. Oh, well, can't be helped, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like she didn't really try that hard to be like, hmm. <laughs> Bene got a Jesuit. Bene got a Jesuit. Oh, that goes. I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a little bit, a little more wine. Oh yeah, let's Mike. do a refill real quick. Is uh, is there anything that we missed in that chapter for you? Yeah. No, actually, I think we got everything. I, oh. Uh, the one thing I do want to put on is that I I think I didn't catch the line uh, right as we got 
uh, past it, but it was um, where Jessica saw this moment as the point of Paul's ascendancy was most important to her. And I, I just thought that language was really important to use. Of like, where which uh, page was that, or where was that? I I don't know. I didn't actually. I thought I had the text pulled out, but I did not in my notes. Um, sorry, but I think I missed that. It it is in that point of her commenting with Stilgar after she releases him and this whole religious back and forth, and she just like the fact that she's um wanting to put Paul above all these of the Fremen, and I feel like in a way that's implying like, like I said, to install him as the Messiah. But, like, to basically shove him above Stilgar in some way. To get, like, Stilgar subservient to him and thus, like, this whole tribe. I think I just missed the ascendancy bit. I don't think I've seen that in this chapter once. Yeah, uh, the test of reason, Jessica translated. The sudden need of Paul's ascendancy overrode all the other considerations. And she barked. My son's been tested with the Gamjabar. Okay. So it's what provokes her to say Gamjabar. So I just I just thought that was really interesting of like it overrode all other considerations is getting Paul in this place of power mm-hmm. and control over the Fremen. Uh that is my only last little bit there. So you think that's her her end game? I just thought it was interesting. Or like I don't think we've seen that motivation come through yet. Especially for Jessica, I guess. It's sort of like a it's sort of like her making up a, a, a new plot within, you know, plans within right. plans. Like we just had another one drafted up before her our eyes. Is showing. Yeah, yeah. Her inside is showing. I like that. I think that's a good place to end for the chapter. Derek, I guess there's only uh, one thing left to talk about when it comes to this chapter. Uh, is it? Uh, I mean, it's got to have something to do with getting our spice flowing. Yeah, getting our spice going. It's our sponsor, Overlords Audible. Ah, Amazon and Audible. <laughs> As everyone knows, we've partnered with Audible, and right now they're offering a free 30-day trial to our listeners when they visit audibletrial.com slash spiceworldpod. Oh, that is fantastic. It's just great to hear. It rolls right off the tongue. Mm-hmm. When you sign up, you'll get a free credit that you can use to pick from one of any of thousands of titles, just like Doom. That was my first book. I highly recommend it. Obviously, we're enjoying the voice acting to mm-hmm. the whole thing. Helps us learn some pronunciation of words here and there. Exactly. And if you sign up with your Amazon Prime account, then you get two credits during that trial period. Oh, that's awesome. Doesn't matter what price they are, you can buy the most expensive book they have. One credit equals one book. <laughs> Can't go wrong there. What have you been listening to on Audible recently? So I've been dipping back, and uh, I, I love Space Mike. I love it so much. <laughs> Do you so really? So I picked up uh, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz. He's the old mission director for uh, NASA, who saw like the Mercury program through the Apollo program. Oh. The iconic one uh, in Apollo 13, he wears that vest. Oh! That's always his flight direction vest, okay. which his wife would make for him. Oh, that's uh, cool. The best part of this is, like, it's just crazy hearing how they started from scratch. They had nothing when they were building NASA up. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everybody is in their 20s, just working crazy hours, like, trying to get a man on the moon. Uh, it's a phenomenal read. And hearing it all from his perspective, too, was really great. So I'd recommend to you guys, if you, if you don't want to get doomed with that little token, get Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz. And at the end of 30 days, you say you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Fools. Fools. <laughs> Why would you not? Audible's going to go ahead and send you a little courtesy email, see if you want to continue. I love it when companies do that, That's, and yeah. not too many do nowadays. That is really nice of them. So, regardless if you don't want to continue or not, any of the books that you spent your credits on, you get to keep those books. Yeah, They're your, yours. Your entire library that you guys rack up. So, I'm looking forward to keeping my mic. It's 30 and growing, and I'm going to keep them all with me forever. Oh, there you go. Well, we know you guys understand the value of a good book. We're going to help you get another one for free when you visit audibletrial.com slash spiceworldpod. Oh, 
That was audibletrial.com slash spiceworldpod. Yeah. <laughs> Even I can do it. <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, what's our little deep dive now that we've got our wine glasses filled up? Oh, yeah, filled up, ready to go. And this, this wine's growing on me. It was a little strong in the beginning, but I think my like palate is kind of ready for it now. In the, in the middle of filling it up, you're just like, yeah, 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 this is all right. I do want some more. Uh, <laughs> it just seems like it'd be really good if I was like nibbling at something with it. I don't know, like a plate of fruit or like... Dude, I got some grapes. <laughs> more grapes, grapes on grapes. We're just I, like grapes, bro. I think you're putting a hat on a hat. Um, I was thinking of variety, but in any case, Mike, this one. Uh, who who'd we meet this chapter? Anyone interesting? Well, we met Jameis. Uh, no, he's not going to do it for me. Farouk. Oh, Farouk would actually if I'd known you were going to like him so much. Um, Cheney. Cheney, that's the one. So I did a I did a little deep dive on Cheney. Now, first before we go anywhere, I think we got to talk about the uh, the sandworm in the room. That's half the article. Oh, is it really? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, how does that even make sense? No. Uh, you want you want to talk about her name? Yeah, I want to talk about her name. All right, go go for it. Take well, the, take okay. the lead on this one because everyone I talk to about Dune pronounces her name one of two ways, and they're like very much willing to like die on a hill for their pronunciation. Uh-huh. Yes. So I, I've heard Chaney and I've heard Chani, and those are the only two you should hear. A yeah. third person is wrong. We can do, we can go de facto on that right now. Chaney, smack get out of this house. <laughs> yeah, those are the two groups gang up on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we can go with it's the 1984 movie. Yeah. is the one who laid down Chani. Oh, okay, gotcha. But Frank, in his reading of it, and there are vinyls of him. He reads like his favorite chapters. Like he doesn't. There isn't one of him reading the whole book, which, which would is, have been so good. I know, and it's so weird because he reads so much of the book. Um, but oh. he reads like I think like twelve or so chapters mm. through like three vinyls, uh, and he does say Cheney. So leading us to like uh, that's the one I think you got to go with. Right, right, right. Uh, if we got it right from the horse's mouth there. And it's weird too to I think uh, want to say Cheney, especially uh, people of our generation today. When you know that you had a vice president shoot another dude in the face with a gun, and he had that name. I mean, she didn't take her gun off Paul. <laughs> That's so. true. She still got time. Oh <laughs> she might have a trigger itchy trigger finger. You just met her. Give her, give her a day. He wasn't wearing orange. <laughs> yeah. Either way, he apologizes to me. But uh, so in Frank's reading, it was Cheney. In my Audible version, it's also Cheney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, and I've think, never seen the movie, so I don't really care. Yeah, we'll get there. So I'm gonna commit to Cheney myself. Yep, and I'll fight whoever is against me. <laughs> like, like this is right. the few bits of Dune that you are able to do battle with so yeah. far. Like, <laughs> but you, like, if you watch the film first, I could totally see why you went with uh, Chani because like you don't want to backtrack and do something different that you like grew up loving. Yeah, yeah, and if like you don't get the audiobook, that's the only way you hear it spoken. Uh, it's gonna have a huge influence on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, being like, cool, that's what I'm gonna say now. If that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I called it uh, Chani the whole way through up until yep. like finally hearing it from like Frank. Yeah, because like, uh, oh. it's got the A right in there. So, right, like, right. yeah, I anglicize it and I go with it. But we're going to do the backstory of Chani Kynes mm. uh, and get us the cool part. Her article goes on. She's in other books, Mike. I only get to go through, like, half the article. Mm. So we get to save half of it for a little down the road if we ever want to come back and uh, see what else it comments on her doings. But I can tell you that she was born in the year 10177. Uh, so that puts her at about 14 years old right now. So pretty much the same age as Paul. Yeah, she's one year uh, his junior. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's the daughter of Liet Kynes, our imperial planetologist, and uh, the secret leader of the Fremen. And then her mother's name was Falra. Falra? Uh, Falra. F-A-L-R-A. All right. Good, solid Do Fremen you know what name. that means? Uh, no, I, I don't got anything for you of, like, uh, if there's a meaning behind that name or not, or why mm. they would have chosen it for her. Uh, I think it is only from the encyclopedia that we get that information, though. Uh, I don't even think the appendix mentions that uh, who the mother was of it. Mm. But so when she was born, she had some godparents too. Any idea who they would have been? Stilgar. Yeah, most definitely it's going to yeah. be Stilgar. Stilgar and his... was it Mapes? Was the other no, one? No, oh. no, no, no. It's not that small of a family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stilgar and his wife uh, Misra. Uh, they were considered uh, godparents. Uh, Stilgar is blood brother of uh, Liet Kynes. Wait, what? Uh, I think it's just a term of like bondage, not like, Oh, not like they're actually, yeah. Yeah. More like uh, a tribal kind of uh bond, not a, <laughs> I was going to say like part of really favored one son for science. <laughs> <laughs> one's a naive, one's a scientist. Don't mix. And you just don't get a name. So they're blood brothers. They, they form like a bond. Yeah. Uh, probably through shedding blood together, I would mm-hmm. assume. Some sort of battle rate uh, right, right. would be the way. Because they both killed many a Harkon in, in oh, their I time. Bet, yeah. um, and uh, so they stood at the ritual when they performed the Water of Conception ritual for the newborn. Which I can't get into the details of. Water? Wait, Water of Conception ritual? Yeah, so it's sort of like a little baptism ritual. So okay. the Etkinds, uh was pretty much away from the sketch for most of the time of her growing up. He's busy doing the ecological work. Uh, that's his, his big thing. Chani was, or um, uh, ooh, I just I just messed it up. We're gonna go back. Excuse me. We're going. Back. Oh, it's not as important as Peter <laughs> and Peter. Come on now. <laughs> Chani was cared for chiefly by Falra and with some assistance from uh, Misra and the other women that were around. Uh, so most Fremen children were raised in their individual households, but it was like the community still responsible. And then basically, however many degrees away from the child you are is how, like, responsible you are. So the closer you are, the more responsibility uh, for them you ultimately have. Like, your neighbor is more responsible than, like, the mailman. But right. you both still got to watch out for the kid uh, and keep an eye on them. Okay, okay. So that was just sort of made up for, like, while well, her dad. And I assume it's a little more uh, obligation since, like, her dad is leader of all Fremen. Right. Uh, probably everyone does has take a little more part. Has to go from CH to CH, has to deal with the emperor on occasion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he would come back uh, whenever he had a chance. Like, if he was, like, a, within a day away, he would make that ride to CH to bar and, right. like, see uh, Cheney. And, you know, do his fatherly Aww. duties. So she quickly learned the easiest lessons that Fremen children were taught. Crying was not allowed. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. It wastes the body's moisture. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> just, you can't. Um, in any form, it is an, uh, an unpardonable sin. Oh. Hey, that's that's sounding a lot like uh, Pardot. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Kind of hitting it home. And I think that is sort of like either Pardot reading into the Fremen culture or him just being totally in sync. Because um, that seems like that's just water discipline. Right. Built in. Like, that, not even his doings. Mm. Uh, but I love, yeah, an unpardonable sin. So, growing up in this situation, she naturally grew, like, pretty independent. More independent than the rest of the kids, being like, her father figure was also kind of gone. So, right. she didn't want to feel like a burden on anyone in the tribe. Because it's how the kids are also raised to think. So, right. she just learned to kind of pick up for her own and carry her own uh, water, so to speak. As early as the age of three, Farla is killed in a rock slide. Oh, 
happens in Cheney's life. And so Cheney gets taken into Stilgar's household pretty much in full. Juliet is still always out doing right. stuff. Real mom's died, so she's staying with the godparents now. And she basically was able to cope with the loss because she had already become pretty independent. Uh, right. And how about doing things? But oh, man, though. it's going to be pretty tragic, yeah, from anyone could go. And that's something I, like her and Paul are going to be able to kind of connect with True. Uh, when they do start talking to each other. Now, Cheney attended the spirit-releasing ceremony for her mother without weeping, although only dimly understanding what was taking place. The spirit-releasing ceremony, is yeah. that like the... Uh... We would be like right before uh, like the water, gotcha. uh, like putting them to the desk. The open still. casket and then. Yeah, exactly. Making sure they make it all the way to the spirit realm right, kind right. of deal. Uh, but it just hitting home that first lesson, not crying. Already at your mom's funeral and just like she's not even going to win or cry. But she doesn't have a full understanding of what's happening mm-hmm. just yet. Uh, within a few weeks, she had so completely become part of the Naid's family that he and his wives would have found it difficult to imagine her not being with them. Oh, at this point, Liet Kynes, he's, you know, he's visiting whenever possible, uh, sometimes stealing a day from his work uh, to journey to Siege Tabar. Her quick intelligence was a source of tremendous pride for him, and he occasionally took her out to the planting sites with him to show her uh, how the palmaries were expanding and would eventually change the harsh face of Arrakis. So he was showing her a little bit of science. Yeah, yeah, he's not a terrible dad. He's just busy. And uh, she takes it as like this extra tutoring was like a gift from him. Mm. And she just eats it right up. And she is this like really strong intellect. So it's sort of like perfect. Uh, Not the the kind of household that I think Kynes grew up in. No, no, a little bit. And pointedly different. Because this actually follows with... uh, his greatest, his greater gift to her. So she saw that as a gift, just going and being, spend mm-hmm. time learning about this firsthand. His greater gift to her, so far as her father was concerned, was that of an undivided heritage. After talking uh, the matter over with Stilgar, Liet Kynes had decided not to introduce Cheney to other aspects of his life, the world which had an included an imperial commission and all of his duties it entailed. Mm. So he is purposely like putting the buck stop here. Of like, and she will be 100% Fremen. Exactly. And free to be 100% Fremen. Like I had to go through this and like he doesn't really hold it against Pardot, but he sees um, basically that with how far this plan's gone, she doesn't need to have her foot in the Imperium to make this work anymore. The Fremen got it under control. The deal with the guild's all set. Right. Somebody else can play planetologist and go, like, muck around to the pans. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, she gets to be the daughter that, like, you know, he wants her to be. Mm-hmm. And just live amongst these people. And uh, I think Yant, too, would have had a different respect for the Fremen compared to Pardot. Mm-hmm. So maybe even, like, a little disgust for the Imperium. Of, like, not oh. seeing any worth in it that I can't imagine Pardot would have the same understanding. Because uh, Liet still at least grew up pretty much on Arrakis, right, you know, right. from, like, the get-go. So it's, like, an interesting uh, difference for them to come from. Uh, he does have, like, dual concerns, though, where, one, I told you, like, uh, the Fremen are going to be capable. The other little bit, and this is uh, funny because it's in direct opposition to what the movie's going to do, where the movie's going to pull the gender swap on Kinds. Uh, It tells me Fremen women often held positions of greater influence, particularly the Sayadina, but it was unlikely that a woman would ever be accepted in a Liet Kynes position as a leader. Oh, interesting. So he was worried because so like the Sayadina is like this religious track that the women get pushed down and Mm -hmm. that that is where Chandy would end up and not be able to be the I speak for all Fremen leader. 
I gotcha. Uh, so I love the movie. It's just sort of like, well, pull that paragraph like, screw out. that. Yeah. <laughs> 2020. Little, yeah, yeah. So it's funny. Uh, and just that, that one paragraph was in direct opposition to it. That's uh, kind of hilarious. So we'll actually see what it's like when uh, you do just put a woman in the role for it. And I also think in the movie that uh, I believe Cheney is not going to be Kynes' daughter. Or in oh, any, really? any relation to Kynes. Oh. They're going to make her a relation of Stilgar. Just for ease of like character flow, but I'm, I, that might be a rumor. I, I have so no I'm spreading I mean, it that, if it is. I, I suppose that would make sense in just like if you don't end up doing like the dinner scene and some scenes with kinds, like it, 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 you exactly. Can, it depends yeah. on what they add to it and include in there. I, I it sort of is a wash for me. Yeah, as long as like the the main thrust of her uh, character arc is in there, that's all mm-hmm. that matters. So aside from her special relationship with kinds, uh, Cheney lived like every other Fremen child in Siege Tabor. By the age of five, she was helping uh, care for the Siege Gardens. She was capturing uh, sand trout to be run through the death stills for their water. Sand trout. So, so Wait, you, they run the sand trout through the death stills? Yeah, they got, dude, they're full of water. It's like, it's like a little sponge, Mike. I thought you said they just played with them. They just like. <laughs> uh, Mike, so oh, let me get to the end of their play. So these are what these are activities they do when they're five, right? Yeah. They play with the gardens. They get sand trout. And then uh, they help dispatch enemy wounded after battles. So the little friend they go around stabbing people. Yeah, yeah. The little guys <laughs> left on the ground. They just go and they shank you and give you one final yay, yay. <laughs> oh, God. And then those bodies are taken to the death still. So oh. the, Mike, the death still is a happy place. Yeah, apparently, happy, happy times. <laughs> kids love it. They really do. <laughs> kids like kids have the best times after battles. Mike, I don't know what. What are you making that face for? <laughs> what do you not understand? Um. So that's what five year old Fremen do. So during the next years, uh, she learned to weave, to make coffee, to make and mend steel suits. Uh, in short, to perform all the occupations that would be required as an adult. Mm-hmm. So you just go through like uh, a big, um, oh, what's it called in like the school program where you go do like the hands-on vocational school. Oh, vocation, yeah. Yeah, you're just doing all these vocational things. You find the one that's right for you and we'll put you on that course. Um, when she reached puberty. Cheney was taken to a small group of girls uh, her own age to a retreat uh, with C.H. Tapar's Reverend Mother Ramallo. They have a Reverend Mother. And, and you're, oh, yeah. So then we're gonna, uh, I told you we we're going to meet her to kind of get back uh, to this original one. Right. This is the closest I'm going to get to you right now. They have a Reverend Mother, and she goes by Reverend Mother Ramallo. Ramallo. So she's not following the Reverend Mother rules that the Benny Gesserit have. No, different, not quite. Different thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we will meet her within this story. So I'm telling you that Cheney has already met with her. And when Cheney was get puberty, she gets taken off with all the girls. And they're basically going to do very similar to the Bene Gesserit training that we've noticed when the girls had their menses. Mm-hmm. They were taken for their first initiation rite. Okay. This is like a similar process here. So they go out with the Reverend Mother Amalo. On uh, their last day with the Reverend Mother, the girls they wanna, they go on a short hajra. A short pilgrimage uh, out to one of the tribal holding basins. Reverend Mother Ramallo, with her pupils kind of seated around her, she alters a small quantity of the water of life and bid each of them to drink it. I know. Wait, 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 what? I keep bringing up water of life with yeah. you. Can't ever tell you what so it she is. She alters a small amount of this water of life mm-hmm. and she makes each of the girls drink it. Okay. So they each, How does she alter it? Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you. Yeah, all in good time, my friend. Should Any like spice to it or something? Ooh, could be. Well, let's see what the effect is, and then we'll, okay. uh, you can ponder on what you think altering right. it is. So then, as the girls entered the sharing trance, the drug induced. 
<lacht> in Zweis. <lacht> Yeah. She, she spoke briefly to them about the water in the basin, reminding them that it held the future life of all their people within its depths as surely as each of them held a smaller portion of the future within their own bodies. Mm. The talk was a cover designed to relax the girls while turning their minds to consideration of serious issues. While they pondered the future of their tribe, the Reverend Mother studied, probed, observed, and hoped of finding one in the group who might eventually take her place. Oh, that's really cool. Plans within plans within plans. Oh. So, one, they are doing an important thing. They're kind of having this mind-breaking awareness, seeing the bigger picture, learning these things. At the same time, it's a little bit of a gam jabar where you're being tested on this other matrix, right? Mm -hmm. And Reverend Mother Ramallo, she's just trying to find a replacement. Right. Um... The matter of finding such a candidate had become very urgent to Ramalo. Uh, she was an old woman. She had suffered some pretty bad luck in the last years as her apprentice, Sayadina, was killed in an explosion in a CH factory. Oh! So you think she almost had her out. Her training was pretty good. Oh. Maybe her last few weeks on the, before she got <laughs> the job. The last two weeks of her retirement. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. You lose her in a CH explosion. Oh. God damn it. You got to start over. You got to find a new one. So Cheney, uh, the old Reverend Mother saw, demonstrated many of the traits necessary for a Sayadina. She possessed courage, intelligence, and compassion. She was capable of considering her own mortality while discounting it in the right of her people's survival. With enormous relief, Ramalo decided to initiate her during the next tribal assembly. Oh. So Cheney has just basically been selected to go on this track now. On the Reverend Mother track. Mm -hmm. Because oh, what I kind of meant to bring up, and now, I mean, it doesn't really matter so much so, but, like, did you consider, like, why she was with that band? No, I guess it did not. I mean, we didn't go over the full uh, itinerary of the other 40, but she was the only girl with them. Was she? Yeah, she was. And so, it, and it was kind of unusual for her to be there. Like, they were sent to go pick these people up. Like, that was the whole purpose right. of that troop moving through it. So, they were on a mission. A pretty urgent mission at that. And you bring along this little 15-year-old girl. 14, I'm sorry, at that. Paul's the big 15-year-old here. <laughs> big 15. <laughs> so this carries on with uh, in the year 101-91. Here in here. Less than three months after her return to Sietch Tabar. So this is coming back from that trip with right. uh, Reverend Mother Ramallo. Uh, Cheney was caught up in the shattering of the peace that followed the Harkon and Sadokar attack on House Atreides. Oh. This is bringing us right up to the present. So, Sietch Tabar was well outside the combat area, but Stilgar had received an order from the Etkinds to take a band out into the desert in search of Paul Atreides and his mother, the Lady Jessica. Included in the command was a request that Stilgar take Cheney along as part of the group, and the Reverend Mother seconded that request. The Lady Jessica was to be no, um, was known to be one of the Bene Gesserit, and the messages sent back to the Sietch by the Shadow Mates had indicated that Jessica might be something more as well. Whatever the outcome of their hunt for the two fugitives might be, the Reverend Mother wished that to hear Cheney's impression of the encounter, since it was impossible for her to witness it herself. Oh, Ramallo is too old to leave the sketch at this point. She is only left on Palaquin in the last few years. So she's going to be the eyes and ears of the Reverend Mother. Yeah. That's intense. To, again, evaluate Jessica for, like, the next step in right, this whole right, like, prophecy right. and mission. 
in that like she's like no i want it from you directly and that like, you're going to record oh this. i think a conversation between jessica and ramallah would be wonderful oh that would be an encounter even yeah more, yeah even her and cheney having yeah. them like sit back and give them like heart to heart but yeah i mean oh and i mean mike mm. do you think ramallah is, is she it ramallah? she your rogue many desert no, we're br- we're breaking some of the rules. I don't think so. No, not quite. No, I think that uh, the Fremen have their own version of a Reverend Mother, mm-hmm. based on missionary protectiva, and also just their uh, their history. We know that they've uh, been on the same planet where the Bene Gesserit uh, originated from. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like maybe there's a couple things that some commonality there. Interesting. Uh, do you think? Maybe then the reason they have Reverend Mother is that they had the ancestral memory while the missionary particular was being worked on them. Oh, maybe. So, like, there's a little bit of, like, a, I could see right through your game you're, like, playing. Mm. Just within, I guess like, it, the I Fremen. guess it depends on to the extent in which they could go back and see. Because, like, mm-hmm. the Bene Gesserit have been around for how long and have been able to refine this uh, technique to probably the exact precise amount that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of perfected it over millennia. I don't know if that'd be the same with the Fremen or not. Could very well be. Interesting. I mean, but like if they are developing different drugs separately from one another over time. But if if it was from the same source, true, it is from because we, we know it? it is spice now. Mm. There, there is some serious overlap, and uh, yeah, parallel growth as well in there. But I would not. Just based off the technology we've seen the Fremen develop. Is that what the water of life thing is? That's like the uh, the trance uh, the trance drug they use to like look into their background. Uh, it's very similar. Just based off of that clue there, he gave you with like um, how Chinese induction kind of ceremony Excuse goes. Me? Ooh, yeah, ah, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep you on your toes, Mike. <laughs> Good, you haven't missed one yet. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, just with our description of, like, Cheney's ceremony there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, it is pretty much the same thing uh, that goes into it. It is it is a little different with the Fremen, though. I always got to give you a little countenance. We're going to see the whole process to make water a life. Mm-hmm. So that's why I got to keep it, like, I'm not going to tell you because it's going to be a story thing. All right. We're like, it's it's a cool bit that comes up. All right, I'll do some more thinking. Mm-hmm. Now the worm theory, I think, is uh, officially sort of, uh, buried, filed, it's done. No, a stamp of it. approval on that. I think I got everything I wanted from that one. Yeah, I feel like there's a worm theory blow kind of forming, though. And it's just like <laughs> slowly growing. You just don't realize it yet. No, I'm sitting till that, right above it. Till that whiff of cinnamon hits us and we go, it's back. <laughs> worm theory. Yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got for a deep dive for you. That's then. pretty good. Yeah, that's an all right one. I, uh, yeah, well, oh. I feel like there's so much more to learn about her, though. I guess we just have to wait until like later in this book, or oh yeah, I guess the with Chainings, yeah, yeah. She's gonna be, she's gonna stick around. Uh, you're gonna, le- we're gonna learn a bit about her in the coming of this book. So okay, there's a, there's a, we still have a lot to go down. Because uh, I mean, if you think about it, we've only just walked away from the Arakeen crisis yet. We have not even begun to resolve it. That's true. Like, it's still, we're still having Paul, to pull up. Paul's that. still got to get revenge. Like that is in the cards. Like we are not even in a position to talk. I about wonder that how yet. long it's going to take to do that. Yeah, I think it'll probably be years. You, oh, you think like? Yeah, uh, I'm thinking like scale? a decade. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, like we come back and it's like grizzled old man Paul at the end yeah. of this book. Uh, that'd be <laughs> sweet. All scarred. Got a, got a beard now. He's got his own little ink vine. Yeah, he does. 
I well, like it. Well, what do we uh, what do we move on to next month? Oh, it's our favorite part of the day. You know? No way. A little bit of gurney, gurney, gurney. Yay. Love me some gurney. Time for the gurney game. Every week I bring you three different gurneys and one quote. Derek, I need your help to figure out which gurney wore it best. <laughs> it's my pleasure. So, the gurneys have been my mainstay favorites. Gurney Halleck, Troubadour Warrior, formerly of the Atreides. Mm-hmm. James Gurney, famed author and artist of Dinotopia. And painter. And, and painter. Three-color painter. Author and artist. I know, I just love to add a little credential. <laughs> I've been watching a lot more of his stuff. He's, yeah. he's really good. Yeah. He's really good. You it, should check him out. Yeah, I watched one of them. Because you, uh, you started showing me the beginning of it. Because I, I asked him, he only did the three colors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one he did, but <laughs> it's awesome. It's a really good song. All right. And, and then, last but not least. Ivor Gurney, English poet and composer. War poet, to be specific. Yes, so good. So I got a longer one than the last one we did. Last one was, I think, pretty short. Oh yeah, and what that one ended up being a real gurney, right? Uh, yeah, it was real gurney. It was uh, an older quote, I think, from the training days. <laughs> you know, way back when, when things were still good on Caladan. Just imagining a Dune version of Training Day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I got a new one for you. You ready? All right. This clear time of seen ambers, a gold-bright sun's lost in the first dusk. What frenzy senses, desperate musk, our consort of remembering, night's pearl-censored requiem, tis for us. What joys run then, brighten your eyes, what flower-spangled amours, pull at our hearts, what flower-spangled amours, fill our desires. Okay. That was a good one. That's a really good one. That was some cumbersome words. I I'm feeling Ivor is uh singing out to me. I, I don't think that is my Gurney Halleck. Uh just with the the doubling up at the end makes it seem like a real poem. Uh, is, <laughs> not, what? Yeah. Are you calling him a false poet? I'm calling him a Bible ripoff. Uh <laughs> or he just sort of sings his own thing. <laughs> What about uh? He's not an original. He does a great cover. It's like Gurney <laughs> Strong. Suit. He's great enough, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> tears it up in a karaoke. Um, Dinotopia. You so like it mentioned uh, Musk in there for one thing. I was like, who? Maybe that's a dinosaur one. <laughs> but the, the, the what were the flowers at the end? What flower spangled moors pull at our hearts? What flower spangled moors fill our desires? Yeah, so that part, that is why I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go Ivor Gurney, the war poet. Ivor poet. He's singing to me through it. All right. Well, Derek, you're going to be pleased to know Gurney's Evensong <gasps> no. by Gurney Halleck. No! <laughs> yeah. Got, I don't know what, where it's from, though. It's got Brian Herbert and all over it. <laughs> yeah, do you think it does? <laughs> I, I don't know. It could it could really be either. Um, Gurney's Evening Song. Okay. Even Song. Oh, I'm sorry? What? Even Song. Even. Yeah, not okay. evening. Gotcha. Just getting even. <laughs> Just getting even. <laughs> I think so. Actually, I think an even song is something specific. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Uh, even Song is a service of evening prayers, psalms, and canticles conducted according to a set form, especially that of the Anglican Church. Oh, okay. That's cool. So, so it's sort of like an evening prayer. It's called the Even Song. Yeah, no, I wonder if that is, um, you know how there's sort of a flattening of language sometimes it's just like the yeah. colloquial way it's spoken. like Just like getting rid of like syllables well, here and there. Yeah, well, just with like uh, an English drawl, I can see evening becoming even. 
and then being written out as even song mm. eventually. It just sort of like uh, dropping that entirely. But that's really cool that that's what that uh, yeah. turns into. So an even song. So it's when the service like uh, it. service is usually referred to as an evening prayer, but when it's more musical in nature, it's usually called the even song. That's cool. And so pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's like the prayer aspect of that so, song that he wrote. It did go back to the Bible in the end. Oh, darn it. <laughs> okay, so I feel vindicated at the very <laughs> least. In my yeah, life. I know. Your reasoning was sound. I just don't know your source material, Gurney. <laughs> You're too good. Too good. But, uh, Derek, I alluded last time to a bonus Gurney we didn't have time for. <gasps> yeah, you cut me. You, I, I've, been, I, Mike, I've been itching for this. I'm like, I didn't get enough Gurney last week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was not enough Gurney. <laughs> I need a fix, man. So I told you that we were going to take to the skies. <gasps> yeah. Let's do it. Insert plane fully here. Giovanni, is that you? <laughs> okay. A tiny little. Coming to join you, buddy. <laughs> a little RC plane. That's adorable. Charles Raymond Gurney. Ooh, okay. So a, a third name, Gurney. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to give him a nickname, though. I don't know why he needs a nickname. What do you think his nickname is? Charles Raymond Gurney. I, I don't even know. Shot in the dark. I guess I would just want to go like Charlie Gerns. Charlie Gerns. We're going to call him Bob Gurney. Is that what people call them? Yep. Were they confused? <laughs> I think so. I'm confused. I don't know why, but Bob is his name. That's... Bob Gurney. Wait, wait, what was his middle name? Charles Raymond. I think Charlie, Charles and Ray, like both are solid. And you know Bob? <laughs> they went with Bob. Like Ray Gurney? Ray Gurney would have been great. Bob Gurney. Uh, okay. Bob Gurney, to me, sounds like he's asking for money. <laughs> Bob Gurney? Like, I just, he's going door to door. I see, like, television evangelist. And I'm like, <laughs> that's Bob Gurney to me. Well, let me tell you, he was an Australian aviator involved in pioneering aviation in New Guinea in the 1930s. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm digging it. I got sort of like a three-part history dive here into three Bob names, Gurney. Three parts. Um, We're just going to start about him starting out in aviation. And I guess... It wasn't originally a Gurney. I should have point that out as well. Gurney's a, t- a taken name? Well, at the age of six, his father died. Uh-huh. And his mother remarried two years later to one William Butler Gurney. And then he was then raised as a Gurney. Man, okay, Butler Gurney, pretty good too. We had the Butlerian Jihad. That that guy, you might want to look into Mike. Yeah. Can be a good follow-up. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so, so he's a Gurney by fate. He's a Gurney by fate. All right, he's chosen. He's chosen. <laughs> I like this. So, you got this little gurney. He grows up. 1925, he joins the Royal Australian Air Force. Excellent. He learns uh, to fly at Point Cook, Victoria. Uh, he's under the instruction of one Alan Cross. He uh, joins the 3rd Squadron to uh, learn to be a pilot officer, and he's just sort of uh, on the reserve list there. He needs to get his hours up, though. Sure. He's going to do it as fast as he can. Hey, I know there's pain. Yeah. Can you believe they didn't count thopters for so long when you had to get your hours <laughs> before? So you know how he's going to go ahead and get those hours up? Drive cars? I don't know. His name's Bob some days. <laughs> like, he can do anything. He's going to barnstorm. What does that mean? He's going to go across the countryside, place to place, and just do little air shows. He's going to use that time flying for those air shows and making, you know, a little bit of money on the side. Go ahead and get his hours. Okay. Is that like an elaborate way to have a witness? Like, can, yeah. he, can he just go fly by himself then? <laughs> well, no, because you can't fly by yourself. You have to have someone with you, I think. Oh, no, but I mean, like, couldn't you just do that while, like, do you have to get this whole dog and pony show going on the side? I don't know. If it made him money, I'm all the more happy for him. Gurneys are industrious people, but... But, so, uh, so he goes around barnstorming. Yeah, he was basically flying little biplanes doing this. Cool. Whatever you got to do. That's yeah. awesome. 
It was then four years later after he joined that he was. So, oh wait, and then so that's all to get accepted into the air force. Well, no, to get his hours available for his license. Okay, because you, I mean, you learn to fly, but it's like with a driver's license, they don't let you on the road by yourself until you get a certain amount of like training hours up. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, and with planes, it's even longer. I don't know what it is nowadays. I, you do you know that, or are you just it, hoping? It, no, it is for sure. Okay, no, I think it's like. Uh, I think it's like a hundred hours or something. Oh, but what about nineteen thirties? Oh, I have no idea. I bet it. I bet it was less. <laughs> I, bet it, I bet it was like shamefully you low. Premium, we'll give it to you yeah, right yeah. now. I'm just guessing <laughs> that the safety standards are not where we probably would want not, them to be. Probably not. Yeah. Um, at least not in the U.S. In New Guinea, who knows? Maybe they had something. <laughs> but so the one that started instructing him, Alan Cross, at the end of four years, Alan Cross approaches him, says, "Hey, you know what? I'm a manager at Guinea Airways right now." I think you got some chops, Gertie. I think we're going to have you come to New Guinea Airways. And next year, he went to New Guinea Airways. He got married. He's got a great life. 1929 in New Guinea Airways. Oh, so that's like just within four years? Yeah. Wow. Already married? Moving yeah. on up. All right. So he joined New Guinea Airways, retained his reserve status in the Citizen Air Force. During this time, he started flying like large, uh, they're called junkers, but uh, they're basically heavy lifting aircraft. And so... They're uh, basically uh, airlifting freight from one place to another as fast as they can. Okay, okay. Would and that be kind of like they're junking the stuff they're carrying more so than I the, mean, the plane is a piece of junk? I, I think it's uh, less that the plane is a piece of junk and that, uh, yeah, they're just like carrying like whatever. Yeah, loaded up. Exactly. Uh, don't quote me on that, though. That's my best guess. You got it. <laughs> Never quote me on the Gurney game. <laughs> <laughs> We're only half liable on Gurney facts. <laughs> only half liable on Gurney facts. But so what he was doing is he was like helping not only uh, fly these routes, he was also establishing better routes and also seeing how much the planes could handle and how fast they could handle heavier things. And I think he actually even had a record for flying one of the heaviest pieces of equipment at that time. It was a 7,500 pound stator for some sort of powerhouse at an airfield. So basically just a large like piece for a generator or something like that. Mm -hmm. Had it in the center of the plane. The thing was just like basically go dipping low the whole time. He apparently made this incredible flight with only like 10 minutes of fuel left in his plane. Oh my God. I was going like, to say, the, like, this must have been dangerous to full, do. Yeah, but, full yeah. tank just barely made it there. Because you do the math out. For your weight to torque weight ratio yeah. and all that. And you're like, okay, got this. But that doesn't account for any variables in the air of like, if you hit bad, if like, like turbulence or stuff like that, or the resistance is different or the winds change on you. At that point at uh, in time, it was probably the heaviest and most awkward single piece load yet carried by an airplane. My God. And right. yeah, he did imagine it. if a storm came. Like, what do you do? That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, anything. Uh, and it forced you to, like, turn slightly and take that much longer, like adding a mile onto your trip. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, not only that, though, not only did he fly freight, he also flew supplies to the Lay Brothers. You knew, recognize that name at all? No. Were they Malay? <laughs> is he going to line up with another gurney? Uh, Papua New Guinea. Okay. And they actually did a lot of exploring in that area. Imagine like the Lewis and Clark of the other side of the world. Okay. And uh, he was responsible for flying a lot of the crate in there. And he actually, I think we talked about it in a, a B2D episode with the Ampelieros and how like the original like Flying Dutchman carried letters with him. Yeah. As like, like stamped and see like, how fast he could go. He yeah. sort of did that same thing. Ah, and it actually, common trope. and people collect these and to find one is like very highly sought after, <laughs> That's which is really funny. cool. Just a little gurney stamp. So, um, that was 1929. We're going to go to 1936, Derek. Ooh, okay. 
formation. Number four, is he get married again? Is everything stable? <laughs> no, no, he's still married. But he's going to go, uh, he left New Guinea Airways and joined Qantas. And, and, uh, I assume this is moving up. Yes. This is all Ford momentum. It would later become journey. known as Qantas Empire Airways. This was one of like the three major yeah, I, airlines. I knew you made it when you had an empire. Qantas name is an acronym, which means Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services. Okay. And originally serves uh, Queensland and the Northern Territory. And is nicknamed the Flying Kangaroo. Oh, now that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. That's what I, that's what I was waiting for. So they had uh, basically what nicer versions of these junkers called flying boats. Okay. And uh, I think this is something that you would definitely recognize if you saw a picture of it. It's basically just a really fat belly of a plane. And it's meant to sort of touch down on bodies of water. Yeah. But it's sort of like, uh, like with the boat planes you see, but like, Really big. Yeah, like, so, like, not 747 size, but that giant size with, yeah. like, sort of two pontoons coming down off exactly, the wings. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. makes me think of, like, Tailspin. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The plane for Tailspin. I, I feel mm. like you've definitely seen it in, like, an Indiana Jones. So, yep, touching yep. down, like, that kind of era. These things could only carry about, like, 12 passengers or so. Um, they always had, like, a, uh, a steward with, like, white shirt, black tie, you know, oh, yeah. height I of mean, luxury. This is the time of time where you were, like, wearing your full suit when mm. you went to the airport to get on a plane. Like, it was a big deal. Yeah, and so, and in uh, 1937, Gurney and two other of the Qantas captains actually flew from Brisbane to England and actually had special training on, like, handling these short-engine flying boats. Okay. So Practicing uh, on some the new machinery? Yeah, no. I mean, well, not a lot of people had the training on it. They were certain they just bought them. They're brand new. We have, like, three people that are really good at it. We'll teach others in time. We got plenty of time. It's only 1937. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? The whole what? world's going to be great. <laughs> well, World War II, We Derek. got that great war behind us. <laughs> World War II happens. The Australian government requisitioned two Class C Empire flying boats from Qantas, along with their crews, to form the number 11 squadron, RAAF. Our gurney got drafted? Our gurney was in the reserves initially, so he went yeah. in. He knows how to fly these boats. There were four officers that were sort of like shipped out with these two boats. Sure. Three of those officers died in the first six months of the war. Holy shit. Gurney. Gurney's there. He's the only one left. He's grizzled. He's seen some things. So they were responsible for seaward reconnaissance in defense of trade routes. Honestly, the big thing was just to protect the trade routes because trade was everything when it came to war. Okay. Like you've got to, you've got to protect those. If you you got to keep it flowing. Yeah. 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 Supplies got to get to the right spot. Exactly. He was a flight lieutenant at this stage and was quickly promoted to a squadron leader by 1941 and a temporary commanding officer of the squadron. Go Gurney. Um, This is kind of a fun one. In 1942, Gurney was in Darwin, along with some other uh, Qantas crews. And so, oh wait, and did he get drafted in 37? He was in the reserve in 29 when he signed up for the airways. Right, right, and he said, like, they took the four pilot, the four, like, the planes and the, their crew. Oh, yeah, 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 in uh, 37, yeah. 30, okay, so it's been a number of years now. Yeah, it's been it's been a little we're, bit. We're coming up on the end of the war. Doing reconnaissance, not, hasn't had a lot of, like, combat or anything, though. But when the first Japanese air attack on Australia occurred, when the first post office was destroyed, Gurney was recalled to active service in March of that year and was made commanding officer of the 33rd Squadron. They're like, they're like they come and say, Gurney, they got the post office. <laughs> like hell they did. He <laughs> slams down his beer. <laughs> Give me my gun. Hold my beer. Now, uh, Japanese forces invaded Papua New Guinea and they chose to place part of their headquarters it legit in the house that had previously been Gurney's home while he lived in Lay. I mean, this better end with Gurney ramboing in and just, like, <laughs> liberating this whole town. When uh, when they said, like, that's where the Japanese are headquartered, 
Gertie, they're in your house. He's like, I'm going to take place in that raid. So, well, oh, he did find out. Yeah, about the yeah, they found he found Fantastic. out Fantastic. when a bombing raid on Lei was that launched. That seems like there's no reason for him to know that information. As far as like war and Joe goes, like, <laughs> I think they just talked about it at the pub. But is that like something in the Gurney's old house? When a bombing raid on Lei was launched by the 435th, oh, wait, they're they're gonna bomb it. Bombardment squadron. Oh, he's bombing around his house. Gurney insisted on taking part. In quotes, urging that he not only knew the place better than anyone else on the station, but could claim a prior right in smashing up his own home. He went and from the aircraft he flew. <laughs> he went and from the aircraft he flew was launched the bomb that blew his own house to smithereens. Okay, Gurney, that's the other way I guess you can go. <laughs> we're going no, out. We're going on a No one's here. blowing up my house but me. <laughs> That's pretty fucking awesome. Pretty fucking awesome. To drop a bomb on your own house. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and so he intimately knew the flying conditions, the uh, geography. Oh, they no, okay, in, wait, wait. That was, that was all bullshit. He just wanted to drop a oh, bomb on his own so? house. Don't give well, me. I mean, this is this is where he's been flying for the past few uh, yeah, decades, yeah, yeah. though. Like, he yeah. does know that area. And we're at the, like the burgeoning. But you're right. That. It was just like, I'm going to fuck that place I up. Think, I think it's the bigger <laughs> thing. <laughs> But now let me get you to our final part of our uh, Gurney history lesson, the final flight. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. In 1942. He, he flies to Tupile and lives happily ever after. So this was in, uh, I think, Mar February or March, around that time frame in 1942 that he bombed it. Okay. Now, a few months later, in May in 1942, Gurney was co-pilot in a B-26 Marauder. Wait, do you know what day in May? Do we get any more specific? Uh, May 2nd. Oh, okay. Okay. Are we going to say like May 4th or something? Oh, my birthday is right in the middle of May. Oh, but, oh, oh that'd be great. I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> say. I would like, so poor one out, but May oh, 2nd. No. Gurney's flying. He was co-pilot with one Chris Heron as the uh, USAAF uh, pilot. They took off with a crew of seven from Kilkila Airfield near Port Moresby. And they're on a bombing mission against Simpson Harbor. Uh, somehow on the way there, the aircraft became separated from the rest of the raid. And when they arrived over Simpson Harbor late, they were on their own and Japan was ready for them. Nonetheless, they Wait, pressed on with the mission alone. What happened to the rest of the flight? They got separated somehow. And I don't know how. Okay, oh, but you said late, so it's like, did the others get there? Yeah, they went, and they already they went ahead of time, they did their bombing, then they took off, and then Gurney's flight's coming in late. Nice. Like, I'm not going to not do the mission. So they come in late, Japan was ready for them. Uh, over the target, one engine was hit by the anti-aircraft fire, so they departed the area with only one engine, gradually losing altitude. They got their bombs off, though. Hey! <laughs> hey! Chris Hare and their pilot took refuge in a brewing storm, but struggled to stay airborne. The crew was instructed to jettison anything they could to bring stability to the aircraft. So literally anything that wasn't nailed down, it was out the bomb bay doors. Hell yeah. Yeah. Another fun day. Another fun day. So if it wasn't nailed down, and I could just imagine what like kind of things are flying out. Just, yeah, everything fluttering away. They knew they needed to get somewhere to land. They were losing altitude quickly. As they approached the Trobriand Islands, Chris Heron knew that they would not make it to the landing strip at that site, and that they should let friendly forces know their location somehow in an attempt for emergency landing. Now, Gurney knew that enemy forces would be listening to such broadcasts, so he suggested a secret message, in quotes, making a forced landing where Francine used to live, end quote. Uh, the staff at Port Moresby, where they were stationed, knew, along with Gurney, that a woman named Francine had previously lived on Carina Island, the largest in the Tribrians, so we were able to send a rescue mission to the right area. I don't know who Francine is. I, all the boys knew who Francine <laughs> all was. The boys knew who Francine. 
I got an idea of who Francine is, <laughs> but I will not disparage her and her memory. <laughs> so that's all I got to say about Francine. But so they sent their broadcast out for that secret, uh, secret rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Prior to attempting an emergency landing, the crew was advised to bail out, and they all refused. They were going to go down with their pilots. Hell yeah. So they they ordered them to uh, strap in. They wedged themselves as tightly together as they could cushion into the rear compartment while Heron and Gurney remained in the cockpit. That sort of reminds me of the Thopter ride we had when we had, like took off from the uh, the Spice Harvest team. Like, like they were sardine right in there. Everyone yeah. just get in. Yeah. So instead of the normal emergency procedure of a belly landing... Chris Heron attempted a conventional wheels down landing on a patch of flat terrain that looked like a meadow on the southern end of the island. So they were just going to try and like roll down instead of a belly flop, yeah. more or less. And it looked uh, it looked flat, solid. Uh, turned out to be a bog. Oh! So as oh. soon as they hit, they went nose first and slammed in. Uh, the nose wheel that... plowed into the marsh, the front strut ripped loose, and the plexiglass nose of the Marauder buried itself in the muck, causing the bomber to flip over onto its back. Damn. And that's like, I think if his wheels would have been back, he might have had a better shot then. I mean, it's hard to say. Right, I but it's like, it's, it's just you, the fact that they went and digging that. that piston in, though, I th- as soon as it touched because all the weight goes into right. it. Right. Rather yeah. than like, if you would have hit it, I think it would have been kind of like hitting the water. Right. With like the, you know, definitely would have impact, but a right, little right. more absorption. Who knows? But that's uh, tragic. Yeah. That the five crewmen emerged from a hatch in the bomber's belly, shaken but unhurt, apart from a few bruised shoulders. Heron called from the upside down cockpit to check that the crew had survived. Having waded waist deep through the swamp, the crew found Gurney dead. He was the only one? He was the only one that died on impact. Wow. It gets worse. Captain Chris Heron, trapped in the cockpit with the dead gurney filling with water as it sank into the mud. Despite their efforts, Heron drowned before they could pull him free. Oh, that is tragic. Yeah. They said a prayer. They covered the cockpit with the parachute, and they made their way to try and find uh, the emergency pickup. Sure enough, the rescue party in uh, Catalina had received gurney's secret message regarding their landing location, and they landed on the water near Samurai. Was it Samurai? Is what it's called. <laughs> That's still interesting. I was told by uh, an Australian soldier on board that Francine was the daughter of a French missionary who had lived on Kirini. But there you go. Hey. They head off to the island and they found the five survivors the next day. That that is really man. What a weird, weird, weird message to send. Yeah, that, that it worked is but awesome. This, the enemy, yeah, the enemy uh, didn't pick up on it though. Yep. Later that year, uh, August 16th, Gurney's skeleton was finally removed from the plane and temporarily buried at a site on the island. It was later then re-interned at a grave on Port Moresby, where uh, he had been stationed. Yeah, cool. So he made it all the way back. Yeah, he was uh, posthumously awarded the Air Force Cross for outstanding ability on seaward reconnaissance. In 1940, September of 1942, the uh, number one airstrip on Milene Bay was reofficially named Gurney Field in his honor. Oh, and damn. It's since been, uh, the airfield has since become Gurney Airport. Gurney Airport. I know. That's really cool. That is quite the Gurney. Yeah. And that's what I got for you on our bonus I, game. I really dig that. That took a good twist. You got some heroic gurneys, Derek. Yeah, it was like a slow build. Then when Gurney got drafted, it just got real. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Gurney's making different. Gurney's, Gurney's dropping bo- bombs, bombs like crazy. Like, yeah. 
His whole life changed real fast. He just liked to fly. I, I love that uh, he actually bombed his own house because that's where the Japanese were like, oh. actually hiding. No, I mean, that was definitely the peak. Of the, that was the whole climax of the tale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bombing my own house. I was sure he was going to bomb around it. I just feel like his his, uh, his uh, saying the crew would have known would have been like, like hell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do this. You boys don't even know what it's like in that air. <laughs> Tell you what, when I flew in my house, <laughs> wind both ways. Classic Gurney. Classic Gurney. Well, I think uh, that move us on to our classic. Uh, oh, 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 don't hit that. Oh, he's going to knock that out. Oh, yeah, he doesn't. He, he's got a package. This I'm going to be in so much trouble. <laughs> we'll pick all that up. We got to build a bigger hole. <laughs> put, put a flap. Put a flap in for him. A flap and a slide. So. Let me, I'm going to hold this up. Let's get the distrans out of the way okay, before sure. we get this little package. I, I know you brought it all inside, buddy, but... Just How look. big is that thing? It's pretty. It's bigger than a bat. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Hold on. The worst part is I, I did buy I could have brought it. Uh, but I was like, <laughs> for the sake of it coming at the right time, I'm going to do it Giovanni can bring it in. Clearly, I was wrong. But I got a, I got a few distrans in here, Mike. Okay. We've, uh, we've been a while since we've unpacked this little bat yeah. here. Now put this little EDC tube to him. And, uh, okay. Actually, we got uh, Andrew Hop. Oh, from our new Patreon member. Yeah. He actually sent in a message, too, uh, over Patreon, letting us know he's uh, enjoying the podcast. Uh, he likes the depth of intelligence. I don't know if he's making fun of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, personality to make it work. Um, just so, if it's in quotes, then you know. <laughs> no, no, it's not in quotes. Maybe he didn't mean it. He appreciates, uh, you know, hey, Mike, we come across, like, we got chemistry. Like, we're good friends. Uh, <laughs> he's only read Dune, but when he finishes it, he's going to read along with the rest of us. Hey! And he appreciated much of making accent. <laughs> <laughs> Which, thank you. <laughs> I appreciated much of making accent. It was pretty good. Moment. It caught me off guard, though. <laughs> it grew as, as I went through it. It was a real evolution in a process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all right, what else you got near Giovanni? Ooh, okay, okay. Uh, we got Rich W. Sent Ooh. us in a good little diss trans through the Gmail. Uh, and this one, so this is uh, going back to the last Gurney quote. Uh, and he says, as soon as I heard the Gurney quote, I knew it was the Gurney. People are playing the Gurney game with us. Yeah, right along, at least enjoying the way for it. <laughs> um, and then he follows us up with... Uh, this was a tune that came to a certain someone's mind as he was looking for an entrance to a certain place. Derek I feel like there's know. spoilers there that I'm not <laughs> supposed to know. Derek will know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he um, thankfully he did leave me a reference for a page number in the book. Because uh, oh. like, hey, I was grasping. I, I did not know. Um, I kind of <laughs> had an idea. And then when I went to page, I was like, yes. Was it in Children of Dune, though? It is in Children oh, of so Dune. Oh, so I did get the book right. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, so, yeah, there's a person who thinks about it while he's looking for an entrance to a certain place. Ah! Uh, I'll tell you the place, Mike. Uh, I don't know if you'll remember what the myth is, but it's Jakarutu. Yeah, you don't remember it? No. I've, I've told you what it is about uh, before, but I guess we'll have to wait till children are done. <laughs> Damn, that's so far away. <laughs> um, and uh, so Rich says, uh, no matter how far along he gets, he really enjoys the deep dives. And hearing Mike's mind explode with each new chapter. <laughs> that's my favorite part, too. I love, again, when you break down during Worm Theory. Uh, and it's just all mental processing stops. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll give my brain a break from that for a bit. Now. <laughs> At least if you feel good, like <laughs> just trying to have the hemorrhage go. Yeah. 
And, uh, ooh, okay. Oh, this is a classic. I got another one from Laurel. Ah! Uh, so she sent us in a message uh, saying she ran across something uh, neat in North African Middle Eastern traditional architecture. The wind catcher. She says, I'm wondering if this is where Frank got the idea for the moisture collecting wind traps. I imagine one could collect moisture in addition to pulling in cool air with a structure like this. Ooh. So we got a little Wikipedia link. Uh, we'll drop both these on our social. Uh, I actually found another one that goes with this. But So a wind catcher is a cool structure. Um, you would put it on a building. So if you're in an area that has like a prevailing wind in like maybe one or two directions, let's say it's like north in the morning and like westernly by the evening, mm-hmm. you would build like this large kind of tower on the side of your building. Uh, from the side of your building, and it would have this opening at the top facing the prevailing wind. So the wind would like so blow it goes into the top. Exactly. In comes down this tower, and you're pushing cold air in, which mm-hmm. will then just naturally force down and ventilate your entire structure. Oh. So the um, picture they show is. Um, a uh, a water reservoir. It's got a big dome and uh, wind catchers on like three corners of it. So in like this, that would keep the water nice and cool in there. And it's something that sort of fell out of um, like modern architecture. It has been picked back up recently. And I know a version of this is in like really, like I used to live out in California and there's this whole construction idea where if you take the south facing side of a building, you put like this air gap in it. So maybe it's like this five foot out section of wall and it's all black and it basically lets the sun go in, heats the air inside of there. And it's like a passive heating system for a building. Oh. So it's sort of the inverse of this instead of like using, it's using the sun instead of the wind. Right. But so this structure was trying to ways of like using nature to take care of a building. Mm. Uh, and then what's difficult for them is that like they have to be really tooled to the local climate. Uh, wherever you're building a structure. Like there's no like one way to build a wind trap mm-hmm. uh, or a wind catcher. It's like, you got to look at the area you're building it, the other buildings around it, the terror, the terrain around it and how the wind is kind of forming. Uh, but it's cool where they have different versions. There's mono ones, which have one opening. They have quad ones where they have like, like sort all of, four sides kind of thing. Yeah. And they're sort of like angled uh, slats going oh, in to guide the okay. wind. Like they get pretty clever with it. Man, it would really suck if you built that and the winds just like changed. You're like, oh, oh <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. It's like the thing. Like, yeah, you don't you don't build it on a whim. Like uh, today, today it blew pretty solidly. I'm, I'm gonna go for it. Yeah, you would, you would keep an eye and like we're talking prevailing trade winds here, not just the arbitrary storms going mm-hmm. by. So I w- wanted to find something more in line because she was bringing up the wind traps, right? Which are really collecting the dew and stuff from the like, so the moisture from the air, rather, mm. and bringing that down. And what I came across was this thing called uh, an air well. An air well. An air well. Okay. It's like um, these big old structures that would like vent air through them and then basically rely on the condensation to finally like <gasps> get some water out of it. So not as efficient as a wind trap. But uh, let me just bring you ultimately to this uh, one anecdotal tale about a um, a Russian engineer named Frederick Zebold. Space name. It's very space name. Yep. Uh, so in the 1900s, actually literally in 1900, near an ancient Byzantine city of Theodosia, he discovered these like 13 large piles of stones, right, that are in this area. 
And he sort of like uh, hypothesizes what they were for and thinks that they were used to collect like water in a way. And he builds a test version. He goes up uh, this mountainside. We get, um, I think we're like uh, 400 feet up or something from the water, uh, from water level mm-hmm. uh, up to this mountainside. And he builds like this big circular structure. It's like eight meters wide. It's like 26 feet. And then he fills that. Uh, so it's like a big bowl, I should say. Uh, sort of like a walled bowl. And he fills that with these round stones and just this big piling mound. And so each stone has, since it's round, has like a minimal surface contact with each other. Mm-hmm. That allows the air to breeze through it. And then the stones are so cold, they make the water condense out of the air. They, and they cool just sort down. Of drips down. Yeah, into this big bowl. At the bottom <clears throat> of this bowl is basically a pipe, and that goes down the mountainside to wherever your city is around this mountain. And so you actually have like a fresh stream of water. Yeah, and so his structure, uh, he hypothesized like getting some uh, like crazy number of like 55,000 liters from it. He ends up getting like 360 liters a day. That's still pretty good, though. That's like your your first... Uh, they end up calling it a Zibbled Collector. Like, they're even named after him now. But, uh, oh, dang. So that's like your first Zibbled Collector gets you that much. Imagine if you were back in the day and mm-hmm. you had nothing but time to spend on building a better water collector. Right. I think you could get it up to something cool. But I just thought that was really neat. And uh, thank you, Laurel, for putting me on that little track of, like, there are all these elements... Um, especially from Arabic culture of like using acro- uh, your architecture to complement the environment around you and make it a little more hospitable, especially for the number one like resource you're lacking, i.e. water in this circumstance. And, uh, oh, okay. Okay. Giovanni, take, take, take some wine, take some wine. Let's, let's reach in here, Mike. Uh, I got, we did a gurney a little while ago. Okay. It was, it was probably my favorite gurney. And uh, I was like, you need you need to do a follow-up on that oh, journey. Oh, was so it? I got you this. What is this? You got me <gasps> Savers of Paradise. The Strange uh, Case of Edmund Gurney. I got you. That's a really good condition, dude. It's a really good condition. It's great. Uh, it's a little plastic wrap. Uh, I hope it might even have like something in there. I don't know if it came from a library at some store. But I want you to dig into that gurney and then give me that book when you're done. <laughs> I'll dig into the gurney. I see, I see what this is about. Uh, <laughs> then we can do whatever. When you're done. And we'll retire it into our Dune collection that I we're building up. But super excited I, about this. I've loved the Gurney game so much. And since that one really, uh, really intrigued me, I was happy to go look for that online and find you a copy of The Strange Case Hell of Edmund Gurney. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Giovanni, for flying that in. Megan's going to look at the bookshelf and be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> is this yours? It's not mine. It's getting weird. <laughs> and, oh, oh hey. yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got one last one. Well, where'd you get a little ED tube? <laughs> I okay. I, I you got... guys get very close when I'm gone, and I get very jealous <laughs> when like I. Like he really... got me this one. He didn't get you yours. <laughs> no, I. Oh. I bought mine. Oh. <laughs> what? Okay. Well, it's awkward. Like, do you just call him Bob too? <laughs> <laughs> Giovanni Bob. <laughs> but uh, no, he he uh, he's letting me know that we actually got a message from TS on. Instagram. Oh, he awesome. found a little something and wanted to send it our way. Of, uh, do you ever uh, read the book Good Night Moon? I, I did never did. No, no, no. It's uh, it's just basically a, you know, a bedtime story. Well, children's book. Yeah, yeah children's I definitely. Book. I've seen. It's one of the ones I, I would know the cover of it. 
I saw it. Well, Julia, you made Good Night Doom. Good Night Doom. Good Night Doom. Oh, that is wonderful. I'll just uh, read a little is bit it, here for you. It's yeah, a picture yeah. book, so you won't get the full effect of it all, sure, but it sure. sounds pretty great. Good Night Glow Globe and the Floating Baron. Good Night <laughs> Recruits. Good Night Still Suits. Good Night Sardaukar. And Good Night Gamjabar. <laughs> good night, Souk Doctor, and good night, Ornithopter. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> good night, Little Keep, and good night, Muadib. The pictures are hilarious. There's like a little stuffed baron floating in the corner. <laughs> oh, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. So that, that was neat. just a wonderful to read. <laughs> that one was a good, good one to forward mm-hmm. to us. Little good night, dude. <laughs> oh, so good. That's a great way to good one to end it's on. A good one to end on. Yeah, I like it. Well. I think that uh, that pretty much does it for our week then, Mike. Oh, does it? It's been a nice eventful one for us. It has been a good one. We haven't had one like this for a little bit. No, no. Well, if anyone has a question for us. If uh, if you guys know a wine that we could afford. Let us know. We're at Spice World Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, we're always at SpiceWorldPod at gmail.com. And of course, there's also our website at SpiceWorldPod.com. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, you can join our little sketch over at Patreon.com slash SpiceWorldPod. That's where you can find our exclusive Between Two Dunes episodes. Become a Spice Worlder. Become a Spice Worlder. We have Ampaliras, and we just released our Guild Highliners not too long ago. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see what they're going to vote for for the next one. Yeah, we're going to find out, aren't we? If you guys do join the Patreon, you get to vote and tell us what episodes you want us to do. That's true. But what's my little snippet, Derek? Oh, little snippet? What's my little snippet? All right. Well, we've done a lot of uh, back and forth, like... We'll do a Paul Jessica chapter. We'll go check in on somebody else. We'll do a Paul Jessica chapter. We'll go check in on somebody else. We're going to check on someone else. No, we're done with that. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Jessica turned her head, stared down into the basin at the golden shadows, the purple shadows, the vibrations of dust mote air across the lip of the cave. Her mind was filled suddenly with feline prudence. She knew the cant of the Missionaria Protectiva, knew how to adapt the techniques of legend and fear and hope to her emergency needs. But she sensed wild changes here, as though someone had been in among these Fremen and capitalized on the Missionaria Protectiva's imprint. Oh, someone's already done it once before. They already left their own sort of, like, culture behind, probably. Like I said, there's already been some red flags. Something's off here. It's not right. Oh. And, well, I mean, part of it, we do know a little bit of that influence, right? Like, inevitably, that's part of it. Oh, yeah. Of like, you think Pardat took advantage of that, then? The missionary productiva? That's yeah, what he did? I mean, you heard it from his own yeah, mouth. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. He definitely he hijacked the missionary productiva in some way. Uh, I, I think that is a huge portion of it. And oh. then whether or not, but but that doesn't explain how they have the word Reverend Mother. That's true. Like, that's a totally different that's uh, still bag up of fruit. for debate, I think. That is. Uh, and I think we just got that and more to look forward to, Mike. Until then, the, the spice, spice must, must flow. In the great no room, there was a floating baron and a view of two moons and a picture of Shai Halud bursting out of the dune. And there were three Fadakin recruits fighting in still suits and two Imperial <laughs> Sardaukar and a pair of Gamjabar.
and a little toy keep and a young Mohadib and a maker hooks and a Chris knife and a bowl full of water of life. Oh, <laughs> and a Benny Jesuit witch whispering they tried and died. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Good night, they no room. Died. <laughs> Good night, two moons. Good night, Shai Halud, bursting out of the dune. Good night, Glow Globe and the floating baron. Good night, recruits. Good night, still suits. Good night, Sardaukar. And good night, Gamjabar. <laughs> good night, Sook Doctor. And good night, Ornithopter. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Good night, Little Keep. And good night, Moadib. Good night, Maker Hooks. And good night, Chris Knife. Good night, Golden Path. Good night, Water of Life. Good night to the Benny Gesserit, which whispering they tried and died. Good night, Arrakis. Good night, Siech Tabar. Good night, Spice Flows Everywhere. Good night, Doom. Good night, Doom. Good night, dude. That's fantastic. It's pretty good.